Mitch Unfiltered, episode 223, available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe and rate us, please. Bonus shows every week. Become a Mitch Unfiltered patron, $5 a month. And we're going to the bullpen on episode 223. Hotshot is vacationing somewhere. And let's face it, he gave us five solid innings, but we need somebody to come out of the pen throwing strikes, throwing heat. And ladies and gentlemen, I give to you from the dang apostrophe, subscribe now, Daniel Timothy O'Neill. We're letting him out of the corner. Bring your A game. Well, I hope to. When you described Scott as giving you five solid innings, was that a was it a Bedardian performance? <laughs> I think Bedard would give you like four and two thirds. I don't even no, get, no. I don't even think it gets through the does he get through the fifth? <laughs> he does. He does. He gives you he's a, he's a five and a dive. Okay. He will give you the five. The man once left a game in which he had not allowed a hit after five innings. <laughs> And I'm like, that's it. That's all I got. Oh, and he was a peach of a guy as well. Nice to talk to. Lots of personality. Very charming. Very approachable. He, you know, he'd come to his locker and he'd say, come on, everybody. Let's chat. Right. That was Eric Bedard. Yeah, I don't think that was it. But he was Canadian, which was strange because usually Canadians are much more, much more comfortable and and talkative and chummy than that. Little different than Luke Wilson. Luke's great. Although Luke is weird. Like, we should be clear about that. Like, oh. Luke's, Luke's, Luke's a strange human. Why? Well, he likes conspiracy theories. <laughs> uh, in fact, is known to be someone who has promoted the idea that the moon landing might have been a hoax. And in his defense, he doesn't actually think it's a hoax. He thinks it's much more possible for it to be a hoax than most people will concede. And once, while we were... Uh, J- Jim Moore who's actually sat on a plane and taken a flight next to one of the guys who's landed on the moon. Like how many people have landed on the moon in history? Like 15? I would say, I I was going to say a dozen, but yeah, 15. Jim sat next to one of those people and Jim didn't think it interesting to bring that point up when we were talking to Luke Wilson about, about his conspiracy theories. Luke also, I believe he was a philosophy major in college. He went to Rice, which is a really good school. Mm-hmm. I believe he was a philosophy major in college. And he once wrote that a paper, it was definitely a philosophy paper, arguing that it was unethical that Canada would not let you buy your own health insurance, that they required that you use the national plan. Like if you wanted additional health insurance, you couldn't go get it. And he wrote a paper arguing that was unethical. That's what I mean by weird. But approachable, nice, friendly. I mean, oh, super approachable. Yeah, he's big time into racing bicycles right now. Oh, like he does a lot of bike racing. Yeah, he's been pedaling around Europe at one point. I have a question for you, Danny, as we begin episode two twenty three. Although, as I've told you before, this isn't the beginning. This is kind of our bullpen session, the tea segment. It's just kind of us warming up before we get to the real, the real nitty gritty of segment number one. I just got finished watching. Two football teams. I was pulling for two football teams over the course of the weekend in the NFL playoffs, both of whom were gigantic underdogs. Mm-hmm. One led at halftime on Saturday, 17-16. The other was right there towards the end of the game. And I'm watching each team, Saturday and Sunday, the teams that Mitch Levy likes, both have trouble snapping the freaking 
football. Can you, why is it, is it, is it written somewhere that I've got to root for teams that wait not till one second? I was going to say one second. No. One second would be delightful. If they would snap the ball at one second on the play clock, I would be having a party over here. They wait till zero, zero. They wait till how many times when the Seahawks and Dolphins snap the ball, are you like wondering for the first like half a second or second of the play whether, oh, is that going to be called dead? Is it a is it a delay game or do they get that off? And you're like watching the play and wondering, I don't know. I don't know if this is actually counting or not. How often does that happen? For the Dolphins today, I would say it was one out of every five snaps. <laughs> Felt like it was against it. The Seahawks, the Seahawks are up there as well, but I've become more comfortable with Gino doing that. Like I expect him to take every last second. And then it's really stressful. The new thing where they start clapping their hands really fast and in succession to call for the ball. Like that's, that's stressful. I've become accustomed to Gino doing that. I feel more comfortable with Gino doing that than I did with Russell Wilson. Let me tell you why I'm not comfortable with anybody doing it. And I think you and I talked about this before we started to record. When Gino comes out, and I look, I love Gino. We're going to talk a lot about Gino in episode 223 after we finish warming up in segment one. We'll talk about what the Seahawks should do and the game on Saturday and all that good stuff. So I love Gino, and I want him to stay, and I, I don't mean any disrespect for Gino. But when Gino brings the, the team out and he's in a shotgun, and let's say there's eight or ten seconds, eight seconds to go, not seven, six, and then he goes up to the line of scrimmage to talk to his offensive lineman, and then he goes back and maybe he says something to the running back that's next to him. The problem is, is that the defense knows at that point, the next time he says hike or hut or whatever it is, go. We don't have to worry about jumping. We can just get a great start. As opposed to a guy like Aaron Rodgers and a lot of other quarterbacks over the years, you get their team set really quick. In fact, you know, Mike Holmgren used to tell me all the time, we want to get in and out of the huddle and get to the line of scrimmage. Hasselback, we want everybody, we want our offensive linemen jogging to the to the line of scrimmage out of the huddle. Rodgers gets them there at 12 and he could go through 16 different hikes before the hike that really matters. And so defenses don't know when to start or when to jump and and, and it's just an intrinsic advantage for the offense and yet these teams that wait till zero, the defense just pins their ears back and says, okay, they're down to one second. Let's go. We're going on hike. I think it's a good point. And I, Mike Holmgren was the first person I thought of when you were, when you were talking about the disadvantages or the, the problems with milking every last second out of the play clock. That 2005 season, they were regularly to the line right. with 15 seconds. There were times that officials slowed them down in which they were protesting that of like, we didn't sub, like you, you shouldn't be slowing us down here. You should set the ball because we're ready to go. And there's a, there's a confidence that comes with that of, we know what we're going to run and we're going to do it on our schedule. And there's nothing you can do to stop us. Whereas even if it's just the feeling that comes from watching Gino adjust a play at the line mm -hmm. right up until the nth hour is that it feels frantic, right? It feels like we've, we've got to get everything buttoned up here because otherwise our fly is going to be open and, oh my God, now we've got to go. I get that. I do think I give Seattle a little more slack and I give the Dolphins a ton of slack. They had a third string quarterback. Who is this guy? Skylar Thompson? Yeah. He's a rookie? I mean, that's, that's purely having a quarterback be able to get... And Mike McDaniel comes from the Kyle Shanahan tree and 
Kyle Shanahan is known for having a pretty specific and particular offense. Like it's not, it's not necessarily easy. What I was baffled by, and I used to, I was wrong about this. I used to attribute how late Seattle went in the play clock under Russ to the disorganization on the sideline where I would say there's something about, because you've never had great clarity about exactly how the play call comes in, how much input people have. At one point you had Daryl Bevel calling the pass plays, but Tom Cable calling the run. And I was like, that is a function of Seattle's lack of organization on their sidelines. And I, I think that was wrong. It was a function of Russell Wilson. Cause as soon as he went to Denver, you saw the same things. I, I would, I would generally agree with you that with experience, you should get the benefit of being able to quickly get into the play. I'm not sure how it helps an offense other than allowing you to consume clock when you're ahead to wait until the end. No, no question about it. It almost feels like sometimes the offensive coordinator or maybe the head coach in the Dolphins case, they take a little extra time looking at their chart trying to come up with the perfect play. And by the time they get it out to the quarterback through his headset in a maybe a tough surrounding like Buffalo or San Francisco, you know, you're watching you're watching them call the play in the huddle and you're watching the clock. And it's like, you know, it's like 10 or 9 before he's even starting to tell his teammates what the play is. Which drives me crazy. I am recalling, I believe it was 1995. Husky football season, oh. Mitch. So I'm I'm reaching into the bag here. Okay. It's a Jim Lambright coached Husky team. They go to the Sun Bowl that year. And at one point that season, he made a reference to if they got another delay of game penalty, you might see someone come flying out of the press box. And it was a reference to Bill Diedrich, who was their offensive coordinator. <laughs> I I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a, a it was a threat. But it wasn't entirely joking either. And I think he said someone will come flying out of the press box. And one of the reporters, Don Borst of the Tacoma News Tribune, said, might be a short fella because Diedrich wasn't that tall. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I guess that's one of the things we used to do is joke about somebody being heaved out of a press box. Well, we've let you out of the corner for episode 223. Are you happy? I tend to say that you're in the big time now because this is the Monday show, the free Monday show. But some might argue that the big time is really the private party that's tough to get into. So I don't know which way you look at it, whether you feel more pressure on the Monday show that everyone can come that's open to the public or you feel more pressure when people are paying and they want top dollar information and entertainment from Mitch and Danny. Where do we stand on that? I feel like you've decided that I'm fit for company. That <laughs> 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 you've decided that I'm 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 it's okay if I'm out with with the general public rather than the 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 protected group of people who have already volunteered and said yes, we're fully invested in Mitch and Mitch unfiltered. And so there's a little, it's a little safer in that regard, right? Like you're kind of vouching for me. And if I made a huge boo-boo or said something that was epically off-putting, you'd be like, well, I mean, er the only people that heard it are our people. <laughs> they've already decided they're in here. Now, now, now I'm out in front of everybody. I'm fit for company. Let me tell you who the guests are on this episode 223. My goal always is to get the most riveting guests. We always have three 
three segments worth of guests. And if I can get a guest that Danny O'Neill, even Danny O'Neill at some point during his busy week would say, maybe I'd like to listen to Mitch and that guest go at it. Let me tell you, who got, are you following the Brian Koberger story? Well, Bri- no. Well, you know Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger is the suspect for the four killings oh. in Idaho. You okay. know, you know, yes. Brian Koberger. I am following that story. Brian Koberger did some undergraduate work at a school called DeSales University in Pennsylvania. Criminology classes. And he had a professor who had written books and had a connection with a serial killer who's in prison for 10 consecutive life sentences. He had killed 10 people over a period of 17 years in Kansas. She she had a relationship. He's called the BTK killer. Yes. Yeah. My former sports editor at the Seattle Times, Kathy Henkel, wrote one of the first stories about BTK. And okay. I believe I believe the killer might have even sent sent her a letter when she was working at Wichita. <clears throat> I believe that to be true because he is in communication with a lot of people, including this professor that Brian Koberger took at DeSales University. So as soon as we found out the connection, we thought that maybe, and it still might be true, that the professor connected Koberger with the BTK serial killer and that they've had some level of communication. Now, that hasn't been proven or not. On this show is the BTK killer's daughter. Her name is Carrie Rawson. She wrote a book many years ago about being the daughter of a serial killer. And she has done a little bit of media as it pertains to Koberger. And I thought I'd reach out and see if she would do 20 minutes. And it was fascinating. We did 20 minutes together. What it was like growing up with a normal dad who on the side was killing people and they didn't know what it was like when the the whole thing came crashing down on them, fa- on their family, what she thinks of the Koberger thing, what she would say to the Koberger family, the mother, the father, the brother, the sister. 20 minutes with Carrie Rawson, the daughter of BTK, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill, that you know of through the Kathy Hankel story. That's fascinating. I'm a little bit of a true crime junkie. Are you? Yeah, I do. I enjoy true crime literature and books. I find the forensics of serial killers like that how they look at at how people develop that way and the psychological tendencies to be extremely interesting even though it's morbid and i i do feel that there's a little bit of morbidity that's that's involved in in that like sort of interest in it and that's got to be an unbelievable reality to think about this person who was such a formative figure in your family having a life that you didn't really know about or understand and how that would change the way you saw that person. Yeah. So, okay. I'm very interested in listening. Goody, goody, goody. I got one for, uh, for Danny O'Neill. Rick Neuheisel will be a guest here on episode 223. He's done weekly visits with us all through the season. Unfortunately, this is the final week. We had a lot of fun In this last show that we did together, talking about Georgia TCU and so forth, we also talk a lot about a certain team called the Washington Huskies and a certain wide receiver who has decided, Danny O'Neill said to me, for all intents and purposes, that it might be tough for you to keep your clothes on if you hear that Roma Dunze, don't tease me, Mitch, don't tease me, Mitch, that Roma Dunze would come back instead of like going to the NFL and becoming a first round draft. Danny, oh, Danny. I'm pretty excited. 
I'm pretty excited. That was the one that got me into the let's go. Like I'll, I was pumped with Michael Penix. Yeah. And I was really excited with Jalen McMillan. Yeah. Like Roma Dunze is the shock to me. He's the, sh- the shock where I really, I felt we'd lucked into having him back this year. There wasn't any reason for him to stay at Washington after, after what happened in 2021. If he had said like, why, why am I doing He was in an offense that was like, like, he was wasted. He was completely wasted in John Donovan's offense. And if he had decided like, Hey, everything's all things being equal. I'm just going to go start fresh. I would have had zero hard feelings. The idea that you're going to get two years out of him and that he's coming back to that offense, man, I'm pumped. And segment number three of the interview uh, segments, the Seahawks no table with uh, Brady Henderson and Joe fan Brady late after the game on the, on the Saturday against the 49ers and Joe fan from Vegas. What's next for the Seahawks. You and I'll talk about that. How do they bridge the gap? You and I'll talk about that. All that's coming up on episode 223. But before we officially begin with a dang apostrophe, thanks to John Waterstrat and Fireside Home Solutions. Fireside is the title sponsor for virtually every fun contest that we do. Whatever you need, Mitch, seems to be always the answer from Tom and John, FiresideHomeSolutions.com. The Woodenville office, a cross-country mortgage, Jordan Flowers, also always there for us. Hopefully the Fed is going to cooperate this year, 2023. It's the time that you need a creative think outside the box mortgage group on your side. I always say that's Jordan and his team. 425-890-2957. They get answers for you. 425-890-2957. Tyler Hay. An Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning taxes and investments under one roof. EvergreenGK.com, more than just a financial advisor. Evergreen is everything wealth. Zeke's Pizza in 2023. Lots of expansion continues. Eagle, Idaho, Portland, Oregon, Renton, Washington. North to Bellingham, east to Idaho, south to Portland. They do it the right way. Thanks to Zeke's Pizza Homegrown in the Northwest. And Daniel's Broiler had a solid year in 2022. You're going to hear Lindsey Schwartz again tell us what needs to happen in 23 to make it a special year. Get the spectacular downtown Seattle location up and running and humming in the Hyatt Regency, a very special place. Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Episode 223 with Daniel Timothy O'Neill begins right now. Unfiltered. I am going to put multiple hundreds of dollars on two teams, no matter what the spreads next to their names are. And those two teams that I'm going to bet are the Buffalo Bills (laughs) and the San Francisco 49ers. Unfiltered. Hey, Brock Purdy, he's never seen the big moment, at which time the Uh, other guy says, uh, neither has Geno Smith. (laughs) The answer was, but he's been around it. Mitch is unfiltered. All righty, no more warming up. Danny O'Neill, the dang apostrophe. Segment number one, episode 223. The final score on Saturday, 41 to 23. You had the Seahawks winning the game. 
You were telling everybody. I sure who did. Would, you were telling everybody who would listen and who would read the dang apostrophe. Come on, people! The Seahawks are going to go win this game in Santa Clara. Unreasonably optimistic is how I build myself. Unreasonably optimistic, and at halftime, I was feeling pretty good, Mitch. Feeling pretty good at halftime. Feeling pretty good. I felt like the Seahawks, if you could have drawn up a a scenario for Seattle, that was about as close to ideal as you were going to get, in which San Francisco's quarterback did not look great and at the half actually trailing, feeling like, okay, he's actually going to have to do something in the second half. This wasn't at all like the, the, the Thursday night game between them in Seattle where... The 49ers were leading, but it wasn't only that. They never had to do anything. Like, they never really had to take any chances. They never had to dial their risk up above, like, a three on offense. And at halftime, I was like, okay, they're going to have to do something. Like, Seattle's moved the ball and looked pretty good against a defense that had dominated them in those first two games. DK Metcalf was a problem for him, and I was like, okay, I feel pretty good. In fact, I was receiving text updates from a house full of 49er fans down not quite the Bay Area, Santa Cruz County guys that I went to high school with, and they were, they their daubers were down. They had their daubers down at halftime, and I, I even said I was like, "Look, Seattle's got a bad defense. Like this isn't like Seattle has a bad defense. I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly feel." But it, and at halftime, I was like, "Okay, that's 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 what you want if you're Seattle." But let's talk about how bad that defense really is. When you when you just do a little peeling of the onion. First of all, for as great as you felt at halftime. They had forced one punt in the first half, and the best that you really could say for that defense in the first half was they forced a couple field goals instead of scoring touchdowns, allowing touchdowns, which gave the Seahawks the one-point lead. Then they come out promptly in the second half, that defense, and the 49ers in the second half, touchdown, 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 field goal, end of game. Never anything less than essentially the one field goal they went and they were all long drive, 70. Well, one of them was short because of the interception. But for the most part, they're all 70, 80 yard drives. The Seattle Seahawks defense is really, really bad. We knew it at the beginning of the season. We thought ah, maybe not as bad as we thought in the middle section of the season and really bad all the way through. We were hopeful, at least I was, that the Seahawks were going to be able to use all these resources that they have, all this ammunition offseason with all these draft choices, just throw everything you can at the defense and hope that a lot of it sticks. But as we found out, I think later on in the year, the thought that, oh, the offense is just fine, we'll worry about them later, well, I think the interior of that offensive line, the center position, I think one of the guards, I think they really need a wide receiver. They are playing on borrowed time with those two guys. If either one of those two guys gets hurt for a substantial amount of time, they're done. They need a they need to spend some money or free agent dollars or a draft choice on a really good wide receiver. I don't know. They're okay at tight end. I hope they're okay at tackle, but they need some they need some things offensively too. But to your point, the defense is really, really bad. They need some new linebackers. They need to add to their depth at linebacker for sure. And that's even saying I'm not against Cody Barton coming back. I am. (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that, but you got to get somebody better than him. And it's pretty clear that they don't have anybody better than him. You need to add linebackers. And I would think that the expectation is, and you're not even sure if Jordan Brooks is going to be, is going to be ready, but you, you need to have two or three guys that are 
toward the top of your rotation that that you add and then you need to add on, along the defensive line and you need to add quality uh-huh. so i actually think when you look at the value of the picks that they have where where they stack up and where they need it i think they're in okay shape and i say that because i do think their two tackles are pretty good there are guys that will continue to to be on the roster from that defensive line but there's not one spot other than Nwosu who I would say like, okay, that is, that is a guy that, you know, is a front of the rotation. He is, he is a mainstay for your defensive line. Like right. Puna Ford, I would expect he stays and Al Woods has been good, but you, you need to add guys. You need to add multiple guys. Puna Ford, an unrestricted free agent, by the way. I would put him in the same category. I put Cody Barton in, which is I'm not going to spend to keep them. I'm not bidding to mm-hmm. keep them. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes calling and gives them, uh, tries to add them, yeah. I'm wishing them well and saying, hey, but you're not in position to turn them back down. And it's not quite a veteran minimum, but it is a, does Puna Ford get a raise on what he made this year? I don't think so. Let me throw at you something that I threw at the, at the note table. People will hear it in the note table segment, which I believe is uh, interview segment three with Joe and Brady. Let's assume you're in love with the two big defensive guys in the draft. Jalen Carter and Will Anderson. One's an edge rusher, fabulous. And the other one is just a, a wrecking machine on the inside of the defensive line. And let's assume you also, your your intel is they'll be gone in the top four picks, both of them. You're sitting at five as a result of the Broncos winning that last game. I did some digging on Jimmy Johnson's old value chart, draft value chart. And it's interesting. For them to move from five to three, the price, according to Jimmy Johnson's chart, is 500 points. It actually is exactly the amount of points that the 37th pick that they own, the Broncos' second-round pick, high second-round, fifth in the second round or sixth in the second round, that is the, the going rate to move from five to three. So I asked Brady and Joe, and now I'll ask Danny of the dang apostrophe, would you give up 37 to go up two spots to get one of those two guys. But the cost is obvious. If you give up 37 and John Schneider does his job at 37, 37 is a starting player next year. I mean, you're giving up a starting player to be able to get one of those two guys. Would you do that? Or is that too hefty of a price? No, I wouldn't do it. And I think there's even less of a chance that John Schneider. Does of course. It. Well, of course we know that. But yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not moving up because they need they, that defense is not a player away. That that defense is not. Hey, you just put in one guy. They need guys, plural. They 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 need they need more guys as part of that rotation. And as much as I would say someone like Jalen Carter, it's really tempting to watch how dominant he was in a conference that consistently produces top tier. Like we know what those guys end up playing like, but. How many times do you see a defensive tackle come in, even from the SEC, and completely turn around a defense? Usually it's guys. It's plural. It's guys, plural. It's Washington having three or four of those guys. So I'm not, I'm not trading up. I'm, and I don't think John is going to even stay put at five. And that's going to drive some people crazy because, but I, I think he's moving back. And I think his goal is going to be to get six picks in the first two rounds by sliding that first pick back. Let's segue to Gino for a second. 
Now, I'm going to go back on something that I was thinking and that I probably said on one of the many podcasts of Mitch Unfiltered after the Seahawks beat the Rams and the Lions beat the Packers last Sunday night and they qualify for the playoffs. I've been really walking around in a haze. I think I told you, oh, maybe we didn't have a show last week, but I told somebody I, I didn't expect the Seahawks to even be competitive in the game. I thought the fact that they were even playing in the game was kind of useless. I would have just assumed having a pick that was 16 or 17 instead of 20, whatever. I didn't see the value of playing the playoff game. But now that the playoff game has gone off, and I've watched it and I'm digesting it, even though they got kind of run in the second half, I'm going to go back on what I said for one reason. I now like the fact that they played that playoff game, and I'm going to tell you why. John and Pete and everybody else are making big decisions on Geno Smith in their quarterback position. They had 17 games worth of material to really go over and film to decide what they want to do with him. But you know what they didn't have until Saturday? They didn't have the big boppo playoff game, high intensity, high pressure. What's he going to do on the road against a great defense? What's he going to look like? Is he going to look like he's lost in his in the headlights? Is he going to come out jittery? Is he going to be on the money? What does he look like in that situation? They didn't have that to consider. And now they do. Now, I don't know how everybody feels about how he played on Saturday. I know how I felt. He dropped the ball, was critical when he dropped the ball. He threw the interception yep. later. They were in a desperate situation. I think in total, he looked very calm, very composed, I think he made a lot of good plays. I think he was on target with most of his throws. He changed the play a couple of times, including the long one to DK Metcalf to get him on single coverage for the touchdown. Even the ball that DK Metcalf kind of had in his hands as he was tripping along the left sideline in the end zone was a beautiful pass. I think now that I've looked at it, that John and Pete have something now about Geno that they would be only guessing at had they not made the playoffs, what maybe he can get us to the playoffs, but what would he look like in that big moment? Look like a guy that could win you a playoff game against a really good team. That's what it looked like to me. The turnovers have to come down. And some of that is him losing the ball in the pocket. The fumbling is an issue. And it's related to the ways in which he kind of swims with the ball and holds it in one hand. But I don't think I look at it and say like he's too careless throwing the ball. I, I think he takes some chances, but I think for the most part, like he's pretty efficient when it comes to throwing the ball and the, the mistakes that he has aren't, I wouldn't consider him like he throws Kyler Murray, I think is careless with the ball, the way he throws it. I think Gino's careless the way he carries the ball in the pocket. He looked like a guy that was much better. He played much better against that San Francisco defense, which is a really good defense. Maybe the best, I think it's the best defense in the NFL. And he took advantage of their weak spots, which is their corners. And, and he did it while not being rattled. I thought, I thought he played a really good game with Me a too. backbreaking mistake. I thought, I thought he played a really good game and made a, made a backbreaking mistake. I would look at it this offseason and say, he's our starting quarterback next year. Like, there's, not, there's not a question about that for Seattle. And if he doesn't agree to a contract extension before free agency starts, I'm putting the franchise tag on him. He's Seattle's starting quarterback to begin next season. And I think he'll end up on... By the time it gets there, even if you do franchise tag him, he'll be there on a three, maybe a four-year contract that's paying him upwards of $30 million a year. And I think that's a good decision for Seattle. You just answered my next question. I've been thinking the last 48 hours 
Boy, if they could get him three years, average salary, 25-27, that would be a nice deal for the Seahawks. I don't know whether he would sign that originally until he tests the market, but I, I got a feeling that ultimately, even after franchise tag, that a guy who's been making the kind of money he's been making at his age, three years, 75 guaranteed somehow, some way up front and all that stuff, I would think that that's pretty close, don't you? Yes, you're also going to be in a situation where he knows this coach. Like, look, Pete, Pete put him in a great position this season. And I don't want to say that, like, Gino wouldn't have had this success with any other coach because that diminishes what Gino did this year. And the talent is like he was a well-regarded quarterback prospect. Like he was he was the Jets drafted him. So he's had talent that blossomed in Seattle under Pete in a way that it never had before. And Pete deserves some credit for that. And I think that Gino looks at it and says, he's not going to prefer to be somewhere else. And those are the sort of situations. I just don't see a scenario where he's not with the Seahawks next year. I don't see Seattle being willing to risk it. And honestly, like, I don't think you're going to, if if you're Geno Smith, that you're chomping at the bit of like, Oh, I'll make $2 million more a year if I went to the jets. Mm -hmm. So I really, I, I just, I don't see that. I don't see there being a roadblock to a longer term contract here. So let's end segment one before we get to the serial killer's daughter in segment uh, two, how it's interesting that we're asking a similar question now, as we did when the Mariners were eliminated, the Mariners were eliminated in the postseason by a division rival that they're chasing. The Seahawks are now eliminated in the postseason by a division rival whom they're chasing. And we're asking the same question. How do you bridge the gap? How do the Mariners bridge the gap? I'm actually going to ask you about that in, uh, in our other stuff segment. I think the biggest problem that the Seahawks have facing them is the, the one that they enjoyed for so many years. The San Francisco 49ers have a cool-looking quarterback who's not making mistakes, you're sold on Purdy? Well, I don't know that I'm I'm sold on the combination of Shanahan and Purdy. He seems perfect mm-hmm. for that for that thing. And look at they've got him under under I, I don't know what's going to happen with Trey Lance, but right. they're in a position if they love Purdy to spend a lot of money elsewhere. They've got a dirt cheap solution at quarterback for the next what is it? 3 3 years before he would make any money. The Seahawks know a little bit about that. That's a hard one. That's a hard one for the Seahawks to gain ground on when they're looking at spending $27 million a year for their newfound quarterback, right? You're right, but I would say Seattle has the advantage because of the draft capital they have this year. San Francisco, while they might get a deal on Purdy, if it turns out he's good, they've also given up a lot for Trey Lance. Like that's, that's coming out of their draft capital and they traded for Christian McCaffrey. Like all of these things are good decisions by them. Like I actually think that San Francisco is a really well-managed and well-coached team right now, but they're not going to be in a position to add all that much, even with a cheap quarterback because of how much some of those defensive guys are making. So I, I actually think that the difference between the Mariners and the Seahawks is the Seahawks have that gap, but you're clearly seeing that they have some chips to close that gap. They, they've, got, they've got ammunition. Those two, the number five and number 38, are big-time picks for them to close that gap. And 
Whereas the Mariners, we spent all this offseason waiting for them to spend money. And it looks like it, it looks like they're like, hey, you know, the big additions we made. Yeah, that was that was that was the trade we made last year. That's the guy that we extended. That's the Julio Rodriguez. So if you're not going to spend as the Mariners, I suppose we could wait until this new international signing begins to shave and we can start talking about where he's. <laughs> oh, but like, honestly, like, what's the path for Seattle? The path is pretty clear. You need to get deeper on defense and the money you spend at quarterback. I don't think that's going to be a handicap because you kind of, you know how Gino is, but I think you feel pretty good about it with the Seahawks. I'm with you. I, I The only reaction I would say about the 49ers is you talk about all the money that they give those, those defensive players having the cheap quarterback. If, if they had a quarterback right now that they had to pay, they would lose defensive players. That's just the way the NFL works, the way the NFL wants to work. They don't want a team that's got great eight or 10 great defensive players to be able to keep them all. But because they've got this Purdy, if Purdy's the answer at that price, they're going to be able to sell out to keep all of these guys happy and feeding all these guys instead of losing them to free agency. You're right. And what's hilarious is that we've already seen San Francisco lose defensive guys because of the price of their quarterback. It was just Jimmy Garoppolo. They, they ended up having to trade DeForest Buckner. Right. Like DeForest Buckner's a really good defensive tackle. And they decided, wait, we like him, but we're going to have to trade him for a first round pick. And J- Javon Kinlaw has been, has been banged up and had a bad knee and hasn't been as productive as, but it's almost like San Francisco's seen it through to the other side of that, where they're, they might now have a little bit of a quarterback bargain. And you're right. That's going to allow them freedom in retaining dudes. So let's get to the three interview segments and come back with other stuff. Daniel Timothy O'Neill in for Hot Shot on episode 223. I got a lot of little stuff for you, including the Mariners, including the University of Washington, including Howard Schultz, your favorite guy. I mean, there's just a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of stuff that I'm going to throw at Danny O'Neill in the other stuff segment on episode 223. 2023 is here, as is the CEO of Daniel's Broiler. Lindsay Schwartz is back with us, and I'm hopeful that, Lindsay, you'll give us a little update on 2022, how it ended in the holidays, and look forward to goals and hopes for 23. How is everything over there? Yeah, Mitch, it's great. Good talking to you again. I hope you enjoyed the holidays. We sure did. Like we've talked about, it's a busy time for us. And uh, we had a, a fantastic holiday season. We had a little bit of ice and snow to dodge, but uh, didn't slow us down much. So we're really happy with the way things turned out. Wrap up 2022 for Daniel's broiler as it compared to 2021 at the four locations. You know, it was better. Sales were up, pretty much fully staffed, and we're excited. We had to dodge some uh, supply chain, some inflationary pressure, but uh, overall, it, it was a really good year for us. So when you look forward to this year, and what you'd like to accomplish in the next 12 months. For Daniels Broiler, what's the challenge? You know, overall, just uh, to continue to see some of the inflationary pressures ease, to see the supply chain get straightened out, that would help all four of our locations. The one we're most excited about is our downtown location, downtown Seattle. It's in the Hyatt Regency on the second floor. It's the biggest location we've ever done. It's got the newest decor. It's really cool. And we opened that in 2018. We had a pretty good year in 2019, and then, of course, we all know what happened in 2020. So tough timing to open a brand new space. 
but the convention center edition opens in January. It's right across the street from the hotel. We're super excited about that. And we hope it just kind of helps with the momentum overall of downtown Seattle. There's, there's more people working downtown than there were the previous year. And we hope that that trend continues. There's more people that'll be taking cruises up to Alaska, leaving from Seattle this summer. So we think that's going to be great. So, so lots of exciting things going on downtown Seattle. And, and hopefully it's just revitalized and get this thing rolling again. I'd imagine that most of our listeners that have been to Daniel's Broiler have not experienced that location. And it's right there across from the Paramount. It's a great night out on a Saturday night if you want to try it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it appeals to locals who are going to Seattle downtown for whatever reason, whether they're going to a show or going shopping, uh, working downtown. And then also, of course, for travelers, for, for business travelers, for tourists. So it really appeals to a wide range. And uh, yeah, people who haven't been there should, should go check it out. It looks a little bit different, kind of updated from the other three. It's really fun and it's cool. Daniel's Broiler in 2023 and try out. The downtown location opened in 2018. Let me tell you, I've been there. It's magnificent. It's a perfect night out on a Saturday night if you want to give it a try. Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. More than six weeks after four University of Idaho students were murdered in their apartment just blocks away from campus, police say they have arrested a suspect. 28-year-old Brian Koberger was arrested in northeastern Pennsylvania and is awaiting extradition to Idaho on a warrant for fugitive from justice. As the world watches and attempts to get its arms around the senseless murders in Idaho, Brian Koberger faces murder charges and potentially the death penalty wasn't long after Koberger's arrest that we learned of studies at DeSales University in Pennsylvania with, among others, Dr. Catherine Ramsland, who for many years has had a close relationship with Dennis Rader, infamously known as the BTK killer. Bind, torture, and kill. Responsible for 10 Kansas murders between 1974 and 1991, and currently serving 10 consecutive life sentences. Joining us on Unfiltered, and really nice to do so, is the serial killer's daughter, Carrie Rawson. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. First, you read about the Idaho murders. Then you learn of the arrest. And not too long after, the connection with Ramsland, the professor who collaborated with your father on her book, and still remains in fairly close contact. I can't imagine what your emotions were when you started piecing it all together. Um, I live with um, PTSD from my father's arrest in 2005. So it's been almost 18 years. So I was relieved to initially hear that they had arrested a suspect in the Idaho murders. I had been following the case pretty closely, kind of sort of embedded quietly in the true crime community online. Um, then when I saw the connection, um, to Dr. Ramsland, I knew right away about her connection with my father. And so that's sort of when my own PTSD kind of got in there. And I, I had a difficult day because of that side connection, just having to manage my own, my own stuff that spins up when I have PTSD. One of my kids was hanging out with me and I said, look, mom's not doing great today. And he's 11. So you don't really want to go into details, but I just told him enough I mean, I even, I had to step out once at dinner, you know, to take a media call. I hadn't planned on speaking up. And then, um, 
the next day, um, the media was starting to mention um, Dr. Ramsland and my father. Um, it was one of those things where somebody was literally about to jump the shark on me with a story, like a contact I have. And I said, no, stop. And I issued a statement. Um, just as somebody that's a public figure, just to get ahead of the story, I try to live a normal, quiet life. I'm normally posting silly, goofy cats or birds on Twitter, mm-hmm. but occasionally I I do have to use my platform. So I just said, Hey, I got to make a statement. And then yeah, like media went nuts. Okay. The notion that Ramsland gave Koberger access to your dad is not far fetched. Ramsland. I don't believe has spoken publicly. I wonder why. And your father, from what I read just the other night has denied any connection with Koberger. Do you believe him? Um, I believe Ramsland cannot make public statements right now for legal reasons, either because of her relationship with DeSalle's university or because um, possibly she needs to be interviewed for the upcoming trial or, you know, maybe law enforcement asked her not to. So she hasn't made any public statements in regards to my father. I thought Koberger could have contacted my dad, but then um, TMC reached out to my father there's an electronic app like JPay called Getting Out, and my and I found that out this week. That was something else I had to deal with. I had no idea my father had access to this electronic app. So um, my father supposedly issued the statement that he's not been in contact with Koberger. Do you believe? But him? my well, my father's a narcissistic, pathological liar, and he loves to play games. Um, he's a psychopath. So anything my father says, you have to take with a grain of salt. He would just play the adverse card just to stay in the news or be difficult or give me grief at this point. So I'd like to see proof. I'd like to see proof of this conversation the media had supposedly with my father. I would like to see if there was proof with Koberger, but um, right now it is just speculation on my end. But my my father did mention um, in the media the similarities between the suspect in Idaho murders like M.O. and my father. Um, so he did yeah. bring up those things. Yeah. Criminology students often communicate with your dad in prison by letters and even on the phone. He's made himself available over the years or not? Oh, yeah. I mean, even the general public does. It's he's wow. my father's. Yes. My father's had like a massive correspondence routine going on since he was um, arrested uh, so yeah. And it's, it's really common even for like criminology students to contact my father. But then I talked to another criminologist that actually they ask and he doesn't allow them to contact my dad just because of like the games my dad plays. So I think it depends on from criminologist to professor to professor, what they allow contact and, you know, what they allow for research in their classes. Carrie, how do you as his daughter feel about all of that communication um, with the real world? Father- my father has legal rights. I mean, he has human rights, so he has those rights to have communication through mail and telephone. Um, he has had some violations where he's lost those rights or he's lost, you know, privileges within the prison for um, things he's done that he shouldn't have through the mail system. Um, it's difficult for me. It's something my family has to manage because like in the last three or four years, my father's been using people to s- basically cyber stalk me. So they mail my father and call him on the phone. Like they'll say, Hey, I, like they, somebody might call him and say, Hey, I saw her on this podcast. And then, um, he tries to use these people to contact me. So 
two years ago, it got to a point where somebody was trying to get in person with me. Dad didn't even know I had moved out of state, moved out of Michigan to where I'm at now, which is Florida at that time. And uh, between that and a lot of other things my father was doing, I had to legally cut him off through the Kansas Department of Corrections um, and the victim services in Kansas. So when my father issued a statement the other day that my family doesn't contact him and he was upset about that, he knows very well that he legally cannot contact me or contact anybody else to contact me. He, He signed that two years ago. So all of this is as a result of him being cut off by you communication wise or you cut him off communication wise as a result of all of this stalking? Oh, I cut him off. I cut him off. Um, He wasn't just contacting people that were contacting me through social media and email. They were saying, hey, your dad's a good guy. What's your deal? But he he has a whole he has a whole murder mobilia market, black market thing going. So he's not allowed to profit from his crimes um, due to son of Sam, but he, he sends out art and then people send him money. Um, He has a whole big bank account, um, a whole, whole system going. He sent out like somehow sweatpants got out that were stamped with his name, a sweatshirt, shoes, um, old feelings. I mean, it's pretty common for these um, infamous criminals to do this. And then this stuff all ends up being resold for a really high price. You wrote the New York Times bestseller, A Serial Killer's Daughter. And in that book, you described the day in 2005 that the FBI knocked on your apartment door to tell you that your father had been arrested in connection with these 10 murders that happened, I think, over 17 years. How aware of the 31-year-old story were you at the time that the FBI came knocking? Um, the FBI came knocking in February of 2005. I had only heard the initials BTK starting in the summer of 2004. My father had started communicating again with the Wichita police um, in the spring of 2004. But I was living in Detroit, Michigan at the time. Um, I was 26. So I just vaguely knew about the story. It would have been different if I had still been living at home or in my house. But dad even said he had kind of gotten bored And his kids had grown up and we were safe. I was in Michigan. My brother was in Connecticut with the Navy. So I think my father sort of felt like he was always very protective of us. I know it sounds weird, but it was almost like he felt like it was okay for him to start this back up. There had been the 30th anniversary of his first murders. And we think that's what sort of triggered all this. So he was playing these communication games, but I just vaguely knew this was going on in Wichita. I had been home in December of 04 before Christmas, um, and we just had a normal family Christmas. So I was in complete shock when the FBI told me. I mean, it was just a flat out, your dad is BTK, and I went into shock. It's the dictionary definition of hiding in plain sight. You had to believe this was some crazy mistake. Your father was a church president, a Boy Scout leader, a public servant who was killing at the same time as being a doting, loving father. Yeah, the first seven murders were in the 70s before I was born. So my mom was pregnant with me, the last one in 77. The last three were from 85 to 91. So I was six and I was 12 for the last one. I have memories around two of the last ones or memories around, let's say, a month of the of the other one. But I have like direct memories from the night of the 85 one. Um, Because I knew he was gone on a Cub Scout camp out and there was a storm. So I was sleeping with my mom. 
Um, so I know, I know he was gone that night and he, he used that camp out as like an alibi, um, to cover his tracks. Primarily my father was a good dad. I mean, he took good care of my family and I was really close to him. We, we, we went camping and fishing. We hiked the grand Canyon. We took a lot of vacations. We spent a lot of time out in Colorado. Um, I would, he would take me fly fishing. We were very, very close. I mean, he moved me up back and forth to college a billion times. You know, he, um, actually drove the moving van after I got married, you know, with my mom, they drove it to Michigan and my husband and I had like a couple day honeymoon on our own driving there. So, I mean, he was, he was like what appeared to be an upstanding father other than some occasional anger and control issues. Um, and, and what now in hindsight, you know, we see as like verbal or emotional abuse. My goodness. In your book, you describe the unimaginable pain and suffering that a family and kids of someone guilty of such heinous crimes go through. It's not enough that your world is kind of torn apart and turned upside down, but strangely, you say, many actually look at family members of these people as kind of guilty by association and can't differentiate between the bad guy and his innocent, broken-hearted loved ones, right? Um, it's really difficult for a family like mine with what um, Koberger's family is going through, other families of infamous criminals. Um, I mean, right now, he's innocent until proven guilty, but the public's already made that call. So if for some reason he was found not guilty in trial, it's still going to follow them the rest of their lives. Uh, anybody that knew my family before he was arrested would have talked about him being a scout leader and a um, church leader and a volunteer in the community and like this upstanding citizen with this beautiful yard. People that only knew of my family after some of them can still think we're, we've been hiding something for 18 years or question, how do we not know what is our problem? We can be treated poorly by some people. And it just it completely upends your life when you get that knock or the no knock warrant from the FBI. I mean, your whole life has changed. You're having to deal with media, law enforcement, legal stuff. And law enforcement has to clear you. So they, they come in kind of hot and hard mm-hmm. until they they clear you. So it didn't take them long to clear my family. They could tell we were in shock and that they knew pretty much right away we were like the eighth victim family of my father's. Even coming to terms with that took me a long time because I never thought of myself, even until a while ago that I was a trauma victim or abuse victim, crime victim. It was not something I ever really thought about myself because I hadn't thought of like these things actually happening to me. So it's just, it's just like this God awful upending thing that happens to families like mine, not just the victim families, everybody's altered. Even the, even the police department, those young policemen that went into the um, Idaho house early on, especially, I mean, they weren't used to that sort of crime happening. You got to a point where you forgave him. Was, was, was there a tipping point? Was there something that allowed you to get over the hump, either in forgiveness, healing, or both before you ultimately cut him off? My next question is, I'm going to ask you to characterize what your relationship and what the communication was like 
in the years that you did talk to your dad in prison before you decided, okay, enough's enough. Uh, so after my father was arrested in 2005, um, I sent him letters early on, you know, basically saying, Hey, if you're guilty, can you take a plea? spare our family, the victim's families, the community, like we've just, everyone's been through enough. We knew he was guilty by the first night we had been told he was confessing. So we just, you know, gently tried to push my father, which is not something you can do, but we tried to do it so that it, it was his decision. After he pled guilty, there were letters for a while. And then I had to cut him off when I became pregnant with my first kid. I just couldn't deal with it. And so there was a gap for five years, but then I, I'm a Christian. And so in church, you know, they were talk about forgiveness and I didn't, couldn't handle the sermons very well. I didn't want to forgive my dad. When I started wrestling with, and I started being a little more open with people about my story and I was wrestling with God a lot. And then I came home in the winter of December 12, and I was just driving and it was like, it hit me like a light hit me. And I started crying. Like I knew I had forgiven my father. So I went home right away and I wrote him a six page letter. And at the end I said, you know, I've forgiven you. His you response. Know, I, um, I got, I got a letter right after that saying like it had picked up his spirits and made him feel better. And he was glad to hear from me because he hadn't for five years. So we were back in communication then um, for five more years but then he kept trying to insert himself when I was in the media, trying to be involved in my book, pushing me to be in Dr. Ramsland's book. That's about him. And then all this other stuff was happening where people were stalking me when I was talking about, he was just getting, as he's aged, he's just kind of let those masks fall with my family and becoming more controlling and sending us drawings and all these things that, you know, I just don't even associate with the man I knew. And that's when I finally cut him off. But I also think in that time I had gotten a lot more therapy and I learned about boundaries and had gotten stronger and realized the only way to manage a relationship with a narcissist or a psychopath, you have to just full cut him off. Which isn't easy to do when he's your dad. No, it's not easy at all. I still love the man I knew. I don't know BTK. I don't know the man, you know, post arrest that's behaving in this way. It's really hard for me to merge those two together. Um, and in my case, you can still love somebody like a family member, but you don't have to be in relationship with them because you, because your safety comes first. How old is your dad now? 77. I'm 44. And if you had the ear of the Koberger's family right now, what would you say? I would say I think it was smart of them to issue that statement and then not talk. Now, I don't know if the gag order covers them, too. I believe it maybe does. I think just take things, you know, a day at a time or less, you know, an hour or a minute at a time. You just have to decide that you're going to stay alive and put one foot in front of the other. And and you're going to get through this, you know, and, and make those decisions as you go. You're not going to be able to decide everything. You just have to make a decision really day to day. It's a whole grief process. You're going through a whole grief process, not just the victim's families, but the suspect's family because they've lost a family member and almost always. So you're going through shock and anger and denial, and you're eventually going to get to acceptance, whatever acceptance is, but it's not going to come all at once. It comes in little pieces. It's still, there's levels of acceptance that still come for me. That's far out. 
How old are your kids, Carrie? Uh, they are 11 and 14. And I'm sure you think about this all the time when they're old enough, the conversations that you'll have with them about their grandfather. Um, well, we started in pretty early because my daughter, when she was like around five, wanted to know why she only had one grandfather. So we started telling her like, well, my dad's in prison. And then, of course, her younger brother came, you know, just rolling into life, wanting to keep up with everything. So we've slowly worked them into, you know, who they're Well, they don't call him grandfather at all. They have no relationship there. He's Carrie's dad. So they know who my dad is and my story enough. They know I've been on media for a few weeks here. And when they're old enough, they can choose to read my book if they want. We, we minimize the details. You know, they know he's a murderer, but beyond that, we've minimized it. And right now we're very strict about social media access, um, mainly to protect them because I get hit every day by trolls and stalkers. Her name is Carrie Rawson. She's the daughter of a serial killer in the 1970s and 80s in Kansas. Her best-selling New York Times book is called A Serial Killer's Daughter, if you want to pick it up. Really kind to share with us 20 minutes of her time today on Mitch Unfiltered. There aren't words. I, there aren't words. I just, I wish all the best, whatever the best is for you and your family and your kids and the next 40, 50 years that you've got in front of you. All the very best. And thank you for opening up again with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, it's the president of Zeke's Pizza back with us, Dan Black, joining us on Mitch Unfiltered. Happy New Year, Dan. I understand there was a an Alamo Bowl experience for the Black family. Yeah, Happy New Year, Mitch. Yeah, the, the Black family had a intra-family grudge match going. <laughs> we had four Huskies against a Longhorn, so the whole family went down, and luckily the good guys won. And uh, so now whenever Hank makes us mad in the future, we're just going to tell him to remember the Alamo. <laughs> That's right. You got bragging rights. Start with 2022, if you wouldn't mind. Give us kind of a recap. Successful year, mixed year. How would you how would you term the last 12 months? Yeah, I think mixed is good. From a new restaurant opening standpoint, it was phenomenal. I think we opened six or seven new restaurants, and that's pretty easily a record for us. And so, you know, that momentum will continue into 2023 as well. You and most listeners probably know that, you know, the restaurant industry is tough right now. COVID in particular changed the world a lot, changed the nature of the workplace and basic operations for restaurants right now are challenging. And, you know, we certainly experience plenty of that at Zeke's. And so that's actually a big focus of us going into 2023 is, is operational, but we had challenges. We opened a lot of restaurants and so there's a lot of good with some bad. So tell us more about 2023, what we can expect from Zeke's. Yeah, the momentum will continue on the new restaurant openings. We actually have a deal done in Eagle, Idaho, which is a, on the outskirts of Boise, really great suburb of Boise. And so that's on track to open in March. Uh, we continue to work on Portland and in Oregon. And so, you know, I think we're on the precipice of, we're definitely the Northwest pizza brand. We're now geographically about to achieve that, mm -hmm. which is super exciting. But then we're also focused on, we just launched a new technology platform. And so you know, ordering from Zeke's has been a little clunky for the past year or so as we made the transition. We're now coming out of that. So the customer experience in terms of ordering on our new app and online and stuff is on the verge of being better than it's ever been. So that'll be that'll be fun in 2023. 
Beautiful. Before you go, people ask me all the time, Dan, what about the area, let's say, south of Tequila and north of Tacoma, that region? What do you have planned for that region? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, right now, White Center kind of anchors that part down there on the south. But we are going to open Renton in 2023, which is going to be great. We have Burien under contract as well. I think that's probably more like 18 to 24 months out. So it's starting to fill in. But then, you know, kind of south of White Center to Tacoma is an important strategic area for us. And so we're actively looking for franchise partners there as well. Beautiful. Exciting things coming from Zeke's. Of course, we'll be by their side every step of the way. Zeke's Pizza, a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered and homegrown in the Northwest. Keeper Bennett gets a block. Georgia draws first blood. The play action. Bennett looks down the middle. Bakaki's wide open. Touchdown, dogs. Duggan swarmed and knocked down. Georgia relentless on both sides. Bennett looking this time to the edge. Mitchell, one-handed catch for a touchdown. And the highlight reel continues. Always a bittersweet moment for me to welcome in Rick Neuheisel for the last time in a college football season. All thanks to Taco Time, who's been doing some work in the Northwest for 60 years. They ain't slowing down. Same for Rick's picks. The best year ever on our show. Something like 13 and 4. Now, I've been told, I don't know this for certain. The same can't be said for other shows that he appears on here in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know about I, I that. Rough, I had a rough year. <laughs> I don't well, know about it, that. It wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to Mitch Unfiltered. Yes. To just, you know, go the same picks. <laughs> so that half of that half of the action was not good. Okay. It's not good. I'm not worried about the other show. The other show's just fine. We're I'm all gonna, about Mitch Unfiltered. Uh, we're doing some work. We're doing some taco time work. That's here all we're on doing. Mitch Unfiltered. We're doing That's exactly right. right. So 13 and four at season's end against the spread because Georgia minus the points. Unfortunately, for those wanting to see a good football game, like somebody I know who lives in Phoenix and spent a week in cold LA so that he could go to the game, it was not a, a good game, a competitive game was not in the cards, Rick Newhouse. No, it was when uh, TCU had their lone scoring drive and made it 10 7. Mitch, I was at the game. And I was with some guys who were also at the Super Bowl, which was at the same venue the year previous. And they told me and and didn't blink at least eight to one. And one said 10 to one more passion in this arena tonight than for that Super Bowl. And the wonderful thing about the college playoff as opposed to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl is great and it has all the pomp and circumstance, but it's people that are traveling because they just go to a Super Bowl. They don't necessarily go because their team's there. And these two teams, uh, the Georgia faithful and the TCU fans who were just giddy to be there were fervent despite the weather, despite the nonsense of the uh, no tailgating in the parking lot. It was really cool. And 10-7 was a signature moment for the gay. Do you like this fancy schmancy football stadium? It's gorgeous. 
and were it be a typical Los Angeles night, I would probably have come away saying, what a spectacular place to hold a game, minus the fact that the college football playoff people said no tailgating so they could gouge the fans who were there charging yeah. already $1,150 <laughs> for a 50-yard line seat. That's that's nonsense. These We're college football. We, you know how they say we are Penn yeah. State? Yeah. We are college football, and we are tailgaters. We come to games. We meet other fan bases. For you to lock out fans participating in revelry prior to a game is nonsense. And it needs to be absolutely corrected. And I'm going to bang my drum. I'm will banging my drum until the. Any chance? Oh, I don't know. You know, whether or not anybody listens to me, but I, I've got a radio show that uh, uh, meets once uh, five times a week. And yep. I'm going to keep banging it because it's wrong. That's I mean, college football fans are at least 50 percent of this mosaic that we call wonderful. The, 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 the passion that we have for our alma maters and for our teams and the crazy stuff we wear and the thing reasons we go to games and see the bands and all that stuff. We are college football and college football fans need to have a place to celebrate and have revelry and parking lots are where that happens. And if you're going to host the college football playoff game and have be the city tailgating needs, not only be allowed, but encouraged on Tuesday, the morning or the afternoon after the national championship game, I was at the QFC in Factoria doing some shopping. And a guy came up to me and said, are you Mitch? And I said, I am a Mitch. And he said, I loved your radio show. I like your podcast. I wish he would have said maybe the opposite. Love, love. Love, love. <laughs> but he said, I love your, I loved your radio show. I like your podcast. Do me a favor and ask Rick Neuheisel a question for me. Okay. And I said, okay, what is it? Thinking that I would never ask it. He said, everybody in the world, maybe even including me, this is him talking, we want 12 teams in a national college football playoffs, or we want more than what we've got. What good would that have done this year? The, if, if the answer is changing the outcome of a 65-7 to seven game at season's end, it won't. But what will eventually happen is over the course of time, and this is why it's necessary that we go in that direction, is you will spread out the wealth of talent on these unique teams that exist today, the Ohio States, the Alabamas, the Georgias. Those teams will not hoard all the talent, and namely all the defensive line talent. They will not hoard it as they have during this last decade of, of college football playoff because there's only four spots. To get there and to be part of that college football playoff, you needed to go to these unique schools, elite schools with elite facilities and elite nutrition, and that's where the defensive lines were hatched. If you go to an Alabama practice, there were 13 guys that I would have given a scholarship to go to UCLA, and they would have been one and two mm-hmm. on my team. One and two. Give me two of them. I'm still coaching at UCLA. So the answer in the short term is nothing. But the answer of the long term, we will have more abundance of sp- and, and spreading of the wealth okay, of, so, uh, of talent. So now what for Georgia? We've got two in a row. We've got David Pollock teasing Nick Saban on national television. Well, that becomes storyline number one next year, right? (laughs) We have a team that was supposed to miss a beat on defense because of all these exits from last year's team to the NFL and then didn't. 
I was told, I don't know this for fact, you would know baby better than me, that their schedule both in conference and out of conference next year is weak. They have, weak. because of the rotation, they've got a very Mitch, easy SEC schedule, yes? Their, their crossover game, the game that they play annually when they cross over is Auburn. So they always play Auburn. And then when they they also add a team from the West each year, next year's is Ole Miss. Their non-conference schedule, and I'll explain, there was a little glitch in wh why it happened. Their non-conference schedule, and, and this is interesting, Kirby Smart now sits 81-15 and 15 in his college career. He's going to play his first four games, which will be 97, 98, 99, and 100 in his career against Tennessee Martin, the Skyhawks, the vaunted Skyhawks come to Athens. He then plays Ball State from the MAC. Uh, the Cardinals come knocking, Mike New and company. Then an SEC foe, South Carolina, and Shane Beamer just got a hefty raise. Jimmy is cracking corn. Jimmy uh, Sexton, of course, his agent, yeah. getting him yeah. way more corn. Jimmy cracking corn, and, and he don't <laughs> care. Uh, and then the fourth game, <laughs> and then the fourth game is Trent Dilfer as the new head coach of the UAB Blazers oh. heads to Athens. So wait a second. A, wait a second. You're telling me that Ed Reed's Bethune Cookman is not one of those teams. Not, not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy for Ed. But 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 let me say this. Uh -huh. All four of those, they'll be huge favorites. If they win them all, Kirby Smart will have been 85 and 15 in his first hundred games. That's pretty that's pretty tall cotton. So go back to the schedule. Easy. Weak. Easy. easy. Easy week. You were going to give the wrinkle, and my guess is you were going to tell the Oklahoma story of how yeah. we got how we got yeah. to the out of con why the That's out of exactly conference right. schedule is so weak for Georgia Gre next year. Tell them. Greg Sankey explained to uh, or asked the uh, both Oklahoma and Georgia to take that off the schedule because we didn't know when things were going to transition, and then also as a message to the Big Twelve. You know what? We can play with this deal, too. I think Oklahoma and Texas will be firmly in the SEC before we begin the 2024 season. But the Oklahoma-Georgia game, which had been planned, right. is now gone. Yes. What becomes of a guy like Stetson Bennett? He's going to be 26 years old this year. Yep. Does he just go from a two-time decorated national champion to being like a real estate agent somewhere, or is there a place for him somewhere in the world to play professional football? He's going to play. He's going to play. The, the question will, will he ever get to the second contract? That will be the question, but he's going to get a chance. There were, a, there was a play in the game where they were in empty, meaning no backs in the backfield. TCU came off the edge beeline unblocked defender. And Bennett gave him a little, that John Elway move where you kind of rock forward and then spin out over your back shoulder right. and ran for the first down. And he did it against a team that was playing for the national championship. And I had this epiphany watching the game. Like, you know what? He's going to make a team. He's he going to be a third team. He might be the inactive squad. player. Practice he might player. be, might be moved to practice squad when an injury happens, but Stetson Bennett's going to make a team. And the question will be, will he ever get to the second contract? Because the truth of the matter is, had JT Daniels not got hurt, just like a number of players in the NFL, do you never get your chance? They find someone new. Had JT Daniels never gotten hurt, right. Stetson Bennett never, never sees the light of day for yeah. Yeah. two national championships. Allow me to pivot with Rick Neuheisel presented by Taco Time. 
to the University of Washington. You mentioned in our last get-together, I don't know if you remember, you said to me, boy, Mitch, I watched that Alamo Bowl. Those receivers are really, really good. good. The best of which many have thought was going to go pro. Rome Adunze Adunze, is announcing he's coming back. He's joining everybody. They're all loaded and they're all coming back. More good news for Washington. How is this team? How is this team not in the preseason top seven or eight in in America, Rick? They will be. They'll be right there. I I I can't imagine anybody being that uh, naive to think that they shouldn't be. That's a great looking team. It's got great communication between quarterback and receivers, and they'll have a year to get only better. And and now the, the key will be stay healthy. One of the knocks on Michael Penix before arriving in Seattle was he never finished the season. Correct. Right? He'd always Correct. get hurt. Correct. So we knock on wood, and we uh, hope that all those kids stay healthy. They had a great offensive line. They've got to make a couple of uh, maneuvers to get sure that they're in that situation again, play great defense. But if you're a guy looking to go someplace that has a chance and you're in the portal, that is a great place great to place. go. Especially if you play defense. Oh, my. Gosh, I, I, right? I, and, and if you start to think about Pac-12 to get to the, get to the dance and, and win that Pac-12, you got to like Washington's defense better than SC's defense. A tough decision, Rick, for Sam Heward. Yeah. For all the reasons that we, we know. Damon, Brock, the history yeah, the clock's of that ticking. program. The clock's ticking. I, the, the fact of the matter is he didn't play great with the rare opportunities that he had, but very few. But he was more a victim of bad timing. He was there when he was Michael there at the Penix, wrong time. Wrong yeah. time. So now he looks for another place. He's a former five-star Everybody wanted him when he was in high school. He's setting the world afire. What level of a program do you think? I'm not asking you where he goes, but what kind of a program do you think he ends up at after the portal? You know, I haven't watched Sam play enough to really tell you. I know Luke Heward, his uncle, was being considered for the Texas A&M job. So, I know they were excited about the quarterback that kind of came to the fore at the end of the season for the Aggies. I would say Sam's going to get a chance, a big time chance. I wouldn't be surprised if it were a big 10 school. Oh, I'm not sure Casey Thompson at Nebraska. If he's what, what, if he's the guy, he just needs to be patient when they give you five stars they believe that you have a chance to be a first rounder eventually. Mm -hmm. That's the reason for the, and that's why there's only 32 or 34 of them, right? He needs to be patient and wait for a coach relationship at the quarterback position that he feels will bring fruit. My instinct, my my intuition watching him play in the brief time he was with uh, John Donovan and the offense that was being mustered up for Jimmy Lake was a little stiff. I just saw this kid, Mitch, Dante Moore. He's from Detroit. Jerry Neuheisel helped recruit him to UCLA. And he played in this All-American game in San Antonio. I'm in love with the kid. I just watched him and he the ball comes out of his hand so fast. I mean, he looks like Bryce Young. The ball is just zipping around. Sam looked stiff. more laborious. You know, it it was longer. It took longer. Yeah. I want guys who are like dealing off the bottom of the deck with all the RPO, get it out of your hand, Gotcha. make a guy miss. 
Sam needs somebody that wants to stand in there, play a lot of play action, big plays down the field and so forth. I'm with you. I'm with you. Going back to the SEC, you and I have talked a little bit about this before, but since this will be the last regular appearance and I'm not going to bother you too much during the offseason, I want to go back to the topic. The Seahawks are going to pick, we think, fifth right. in the NFL draft. That actually dropped from third to fifth in the final week of the NFL season. And that was interesting because we were all sitting around looking at Jalen Carter. Oh, yeah. And looking at Will Anderson and thinking at three, one of those two guys, if not both, will be available at three because Houston will take one of the quarterbacks and that will make one of them available at three. Now they drop to five and maybe just outside the range with right. maybe two quarterbacks, Stroud and Young, and the two defensive players going in the top four. And now here are the Seahawks sitting our luck at number five. So I want you again, because you're the SEC on CBS. You've seen them more than anybody. Right. Give me the upside and the risk to each of these two guys, because I know the conversation is going to be, should John Schneider move up a spot? from five to four or five to three to get one of these impact defensive players. Talk about both of them. What's the high end? What's the risk? And are they worth trading up for? They're both wonderful, wonderful players. And I think they're both as much as you can say this about guys going from high school, uh, from college to professional ranks, can't miss players. I think the value is higher for Jalen Carter given the fact that he's an interior guy that has played multiples of positions on the interior. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility for him to go out and get on the outside edge of a tackle and rush as an edge rusher. Really? At that I size? Wow. I, well, he's a very sudden player for his size. Okay. He plays fullback in their goal line offense yeah, package. Yeah. We've seen him line up on the zero technique, which is the head up on the center. Right. We've seen him line up on the outside uh, shoulders of guards, which means he's going to get one-on-one with that guard, and he's made people look foolish. I mean, almost like they can't get him. That person and the value of that person is immense as compared to a guy that's almost always outside coming off an edge because of where a back can enter and chip him, or I can move a tight end to his side and keep him from being as valuable. Now, both of those require keeping somebody in, which is why I think they're both can't miss players. But if I'm Pete, I think Pete's going to covet Jalen Carter more than Will Anderson. What's the downside on Will? Is Will Anderson Khalil Mack? He's a little leaner than Khalil Mack. Khalil Mack, to me, was more, I think he had more of a frame to be the NFL big guy. I think Will Anderson's had to eat himself into, I don't know how much more frame there is for Will Anderson. Remember, Will Anderson's from Georgia and didn't get offered by Georgia until late. He was just kind of blossomed late. He's a fantastic player. I just don't see him being as coveted as as Carter because Carter is so unique. I've asked you this before. The thing about Carter is, and you and I have discussed this. He's how many plays does he? He's play? off the field. Yeah, how many plays? As does much he play? as he's on, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I was watching in the he national played fi- he he played fifty two plays in the Ohio State game, and if you play fifty two plays in an NFL game, you've played eighty percent to ninety percent of the game. Correct. Yeah. 
It's time for the last. It is. The last <laughs> of its kind. It's called Who Was Doing Some Work, presented by Taco Time Northwest. You know, it's easy to jump in on any number of Georgia coaches and players on this episode of Mitch Unfiltered directly after the national championship game. And I'm going to allow Rick Neuheisel to have his pick of the litter. I don't know if he wants to go first or second. You know me. I like to go off the board and find something a little stranger, a little crazier. Would you like to kick or would you like to receive? I'm going to receive. I'm taking the ball here first because we have a unique now, Stetson Bennett has gotten all sorts of publicity, and deservedly so. As a former walk-on to achieve what he's achieved, he will never buy another steak dinner in Georgia again. People yeah. will always be buying sure, Stetson's Sure, why not? Meals. Why not? And that's it, as it should be. And I hope and got my fingers crossed that he has as long an NFL career as he'd like and gets to hang around Georgia and be Stetson Bennett for the rest of his life, which will be really fun and a and, and, uh, wonderful deal. But there's a, there's a tight end out there oh. that comes... My from goodness. Napa, California. How many how many glasses of vino do you think <laughs> do you think Kirby? How many glasses of vino do you think Kirby had in Napa, California, traveling to get the great Brock Bowers? That's that's the question I want to ask. Yeah. How many times he asked over and over again? He said, "Kirby, you can only go visit him one time." The NCAA rules. He says. That doesn't mean I can't go to Napa. I'm just going to call him from the car. I'm just going to call him from the car. But seven catches, 152 yards. And I guarantee if we really looked up how many times he was targeted this year, Mitch, and how many times he came down with the ball, it's going to be some astronomical number like in the 80s, 80 percentile. He is a unique player. He does it every game. We haven't found a human that can get on the other side and cover him. If you put somebody skilled enough to cover him, he's not big enough. You get somebody big enough to cover him, he's not skilled enough. And that's why Brock Bowers has been doing some work all season long for Georgia. He has to come back for one more year to fulfill the three years. Yes. And he'll play beautifully again. He was interviewed after the game. Hey, what do you do for – he says, well, we'll celebrate for probably 24-48, and then we got to get back to it. Because we got to get back to work. Just a unassuming young man that has unique gifts. And I hope and pray we get to watch him play football for the next 15 years. Who is he? One more year at Georgia and, and then, then off and going. Who, who is he? Is he Pitts? Is he Jimmy he, Graham when he came out of college? Pitt, Pitts has more wide receiver footwork at the line of scrimmage. As a matter of fact, I asked Todd Monk in this when I did the Georgia-Auburn game. He goes, you know, he's kind of a, he's not really a natural receiver. He's a running back. And at that time he had three carries for 75 yards and three touchdowns (laughs) on the season. He's a running back. He doesn't have the natural body setting up deals, but he's getting better at it. And if he's getting better at it, I just is wondering what this is going to end up being, but he's such a bounding kid. Who's the guy for the uh, 49ers? The, the Kittle? Kittle. He, Kittle. He, how he, about how he, about Kelsey? He's crossed between Kittle and Kelsey. He's got Kelsey receiving skills. He's got Kittle enthusiasm yeah. and, you yeah. know, wanting to Very block. Good. He good. is a he's a, he's a unicorn. And he's been doing some work. And he's been doing taco time work. I don't know that I can beat that. Should I even take the and, ball now? And... Kirby got some <laughs> fine wine. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I can even take the ball and follow that, but I'll try. I'm going to offer my doing some more kudos to an unknown person 
or group of people. Do you know the name Lincoln Keenholz by chance? I don't. Okay. Lincoln Keenholz was a four-star quarterback in North Dakota who had originally committed to the University of Washington and then on signing day flopped to Ohio State. He's going Mm. to Ohio State and he was interviewed and they said, oh, it had to be NIL dollars. And he said there was more NIL dollars in Seattle at UW than there was at Ohio State. That's example one. Okay. Then a few days later, Michael Penix decided to stay rather than go into the NFL draft and cash in in the NFL. And then just a few days ago, Roma Dunze, an NFL first-round talent, decides he's going to stay. All three of these things tells me somebody or some group of people are doing some NIL (laughs) NIL work. work. (laughs) I don't know who the – and I can't – you could say, hey, is it – Ron Crockett, is it this guy, is it that? I don't know who it is. I don't even think it matters who it is. But I'm telling you, Rick Neuheisel, somebody over there is doing some NIL work for the University of Washington. Listen, there are those who wish that weren't this way, that that we could go back to the old days where a scholarship was enough. But that cow has gotten out of the barn. Don't worry about it. Yeah. The fact that the fans at Washington are as giddy about the program to want to get involved, same at UCLA, same at all across the Pac-12, it is really going to be fun to watch. And the Pac-12 is getting involved and doing all the doing some taco time work doing to get work. people to stay yes. is, uh, is yeah. great news, not only for you and me, but for the great George Klyovkov, who ah. represents the conference as its commissioner. All right. It's time to say goodbye and hope that you'll say yes. I'm so glad we had this time, time together. together. I'm, I'm hopeful <laughs> that when you get the text in like August, July, August, you'll say, of course, Mitch Levy. I'll Mitch, do, we're doing, doing it. We're some, running it back. Doing some. Work. I just hope I hope Taco Time will run it back. I'm sure they will. What does the offseason hold for Rick Neuheisel and the Neuheisel family? Will you Watch and caddy more golf than you'll play? Will you play more golf than you'll do other things? Are you back at CBS? Are you signed up for CBS I, next I year? Have, give us the, uh, give us there, the there are some particulars in the uh, workforce that I've got to handle. I've My gig is up with Sirius XM. Okay. That comes to a conclusion in March. Okay. I'm being told that there's interest in keeping me about. So we'll wait and see what turns out there. Okay. CBS, I've got one more year on my deal. And we next year, which will be fun, do both the SEC and Big Ten. Okay. As part of the new Big Ten deal, we get seven games to add to our full slate of SEC, the same SEC schedule that we've had in the past. I hope that that will mean I'll get more games to go out and be in the booth and get to call games. So we'll wait and see what turns out with the the broadcasting sign. But uh, radio and TV have been good to me. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I'm moving from Arizona in May. Don't know if I'm staying in Arizona, just moving to another house or I'm moving somewhere else. We're going to, but that'll be fun to kind of look around and see where we want to live. And what are some of the options? Well, I mean, it, it's always kind of fun when you realize you have freedom to do what you want to do. You know, my wife loves Seattle and would, would love to come back. We have thought about maybe uh, heading towards 
the side of the country that we work in so we don't have this back and forth. Yes. Uh, there's some places up in uh, the Westchester County area that are interesting. Yes. Joe's going to try to go play golf and try to get to a place where he can work and maybe get closer to him and down in the southeast portion of the country. So lots of things to think about, but fun stuff. I'll ask for you to give us one last commitment before you go. All right. I've never asked you for this kind of a commitment on the podcast. <laughs> and because I've never asked you for this kind of commitment on the podcast, it's never happened or <laughs> hasn't happened in a long time. I am asking for a commitment. Yes, sir. That at some point during the upcoming summer of 2023, you will arrive at Aldera Golf Club with Mitch Levy Done. and go out and play we can involve Done. we can involve the newest Aldera member, John Benz, if that's the only way <laughs> I can get this accomplished. Do we have to? Do we have to? <laughs> I can do that, but I want a commitment from you. You and I, do you realize this? You and I have not played golf played together. Golf since we got our tails handed to us <laughs> by Balmer and Couple. Now maybe, I know it. maybe you look at me on I the golf course. It was course. a choice that you made. No, Just I was going to say. Sorry, I choked. I know. Like I was going to say the opposite. <laughs> that you see me on a golf course and you have such nightmares you can't even fathom. Actually, didn't I just see in a uh, email from Aldera that yeah. you had like a big victory there? Didn't you just win something? Oh, I did. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about something else. I may have won a little something. Yes. You something was that on an email? Did somebody put that yeah, on an email? somebody shot an email. Oh, Jake Mitch Levy oh, was yeah. in the winner's circle. Yeah, we may have won something. Yeah, just a nice. little something. Just a little nice. something. Just a, <laughs> just a little does something. That, does that at least... You know, it still haunts me that I played in the senior championship and got beat by one stinking shot. You know why? I want, another, I, I want to go after that again. You know why? Why? Because you didn't play a practice round. With, with the, the great <laughs> Mitch <laughs> who by the way who by the way is now eligible this year for the senior golf oh, you're 55 <laughs> oh. actually we moved it up to 60 okay <laughs> all right rick newheisel thank you so much for everything uh, this entire college football season and all the rest of the seasons, you've been great to me. I wish you and your family all the very best. But there's no one better than you, Mitch Levy. I don't care what anybody says. There's no one better at what you do, and you make it fun for the listener. You make it fun for anybody who's sharing the airwaves with you, and I appreciate you more than you know. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. All right, pal. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guess who's joining us? Well, typically... I would call him Jordan Flowers, J-Flow of the Kirkland Office of Cross Country Mortgage. But that's no longer correct. Right, Jordan? That's right. We've officially moved and are in our new office space here in Woodenville, Washington, downtown, oh, right boy. next to our great partners at Zeke's Pizza. You got to go there three times a week for lunch. Now, how am I going to get used to saying the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage. How many times am I going to make that mistake? And how many times <laughs> am I going to hear from you? Mitch, you keep calling us the Kirkland Office. I've got the over underline at plus or minus 10, Mitch. 
right, interest rates have been a, a topic of conversation around the country, around the world, kind of like butterflies these days. What are you seeing? Yeah, we, we've made it through this year's highs. We've been seeing rates coming down over the last month and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are sitting still at elevated levels, but they are down a solid half to three quarters percent interest, getting back into the sixes. And with all of our buyers, we are working with them to get them into the three, four, five percent range right now. Speak to us specifically. How do you guys do that at Cross Country Mortgage? Yeah, it's a it's a program that's come back into the market. Really, it's a temporary buy down option where we're working with the sellers, getting them the sales price that they've been coming on at, and getting credits for our buyers to help temporarily buy that rate down for the first year, second year, third year to get that payment down until they're ready to refinance into a long term, thirty year fixed at that no rate. And before we finish up, I gotta say thank you from all of our listeners. I think everybody knows by now that Jordan Flowers of Cross Country Mortgage gave away, I think close to 100, maybe a little less, tickets to Mitch Unfiltered fans for the stretch run of the Seattle Mariners season. That was incredibly kind of you, and it was great to get some unfiltered listeners who wouldn't ordinarily be at the last homestand to be there with you and Cross Country Mortgage. Mitch, that was so fun to do and partner with you on. And you're texting me like, email these people tickets, do this. Why haven't you emailed these people yet? It was like, it was just chaos. It was a frenzy. It was so fun to be a part of with that. So thank you for everybody for participating in that. And next year, we'll do more and they'll go further. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you Jordan Flowers now of the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. Reach him directly. 425-890-2957. What a great partner. What a great sponsor for years now of Mitch Unfiltered. It's great to be joined again by Fireside Home Solutions owner, John Waterstrat. How are you, John? Doing great, Mitch. Great to hear your voice. It's good to hear yours, too. And it's that time of the year for you guys, J-Dub. Stretch run in the NFL. We love it. Bowl games and new fireplaces from Fireside Home Solutions. Yes, and when we look outside, we see that snow already. And so we're ready to help you out. And we have great deals going on right now in our showrooms. And we want to keep you warm and cozy when those snowstorms come. We did our outdoor unit with Fireside. And while the fireplace itself came out beautifully, there are lots of places, as you know, that do lovely setups. But it was the experience that was really impressive. Your team came out to the house, strategized with us. We came to your Bellevue showroom, which is crazy nice. Really, it's the process that sets Fireside apart. Talk about the steps that we go through this winter to get a new fireplace. Well, we want that to be a great buying experience. Like we said, we always are here to get the best brands for you, but our belief is we need to come out and consult. We need to make sure that we measure up your fireplace, make sure that insert or fireplace is the right one for you, but also that make sure that the installation is going to work. So when we're out there for installing, you're enjoying that fireplace once we're done. From soup to nuts and garage doors too. How's that arm of your business doing, John? It's doing great. That cold weather is starting to uh, make those garage doors creak or Mm -hmm. broken springs, but we have a service department that can help you out or if you just need a new garage door please call us and we'll be right out there and we'll get that replaced for you fireside home solutions has just been great john's been great title sponsor of our beat the boys competition for a third consecutive year and just overall a terrific partner that makes mitch unfiltered possible start your fireplace search and end your fireplace search at firesidehomesolutions.com unfiltered Niners bring pressure. 
Archer. It's picked up. Smith has time. Wants Metcalf. DK Metcalf. Touchdown Seattle. Dropped right in the bucket. 50 yards in a tie game. Pressure. Ball is out. San Francisco's got it. He was all Nick Bosa. Brock Purdy not just steadying the ship, but thriving. On second and goal here. He fakes. He looks. He's in trouble, but keeps it alive and finds Mitchell. Improvisation leads to a touchdown. We've had so much growth and, and, and so much yet to, to occur here in the next, you know, the, the next turnaround as we get to come back for this next season. All of these young guys are going to see the world totally differently than they see it right now. They're going to be amazed how much they didn't know in their first season of playing NFL football. Alrighty, the Seahawks offseason is underway. The outcome similar to what many of us expected how we got there is a little surprising, especially in the first half. Brady Henderson, ESPN.com in Santa Clara. Joe Fan, win bet in Las Vegas. The Seahawks, no table, presented by Taco Time. Home of the tater fries, Joe Fan. Much to Joe Fan's chagrin. 41 to 23. Joe, I'm concerned that if I ask you why, why the Seahawks lost the postseason game, you'll just give me the, you know, they're better. The 49ers are better, and over 60 minutes, the cream rises to the top. So I won't ask you that. I'll ask you how surprised you were at halftime and how much your overall thought of the game changed as you readied for the second half of action. Um, The second half didn't necessarily surprise me, but I, I, yeah, I was definitely surprised by the first half. I was wrong. I didn't think at any point they would really be super competitive and to go into the half with a lead was really impressive. And you got to give credit where credit is due. You know, the offense was lights out. There was a little bit of a running game and Geno Smith, I mean, that deep ball, the DK was, I mean, we've seen him hit on a number of deep balls this year. And, and just, I think that's really one of the areas that was most surprising from him in terms of where he excelled compared to where people thought he might excel and then it just fell flat that the, the the penalty on the um there were a couple of them, but the ineligible man downfield and the fumble were back breaking and it snowballed from there. But go back to the question. Did you feel like the Seahawks had a legitimate shot to win the game up seventeen to sixteen no. at halftime? No. No, it it felt like at some point the dam would break. How surprised were you at halftime, Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, and why did the Seahawks lose the game? Well, I was surprised on, on a couple levels. A, that they were leading in the first place. I mean, I, I think I picked 49ers to win by 11 points and figured that they would be in complete control the entire game. And so I was surprised that they had the lead in the first place and also surprised that they did it despite not doing the one thing that you figured they had to do above all else in this game, uh, at least in the first half, which was stopping the run. And Christian McCaffrey got out. Uh, on the edge on that 68 yard run and had some other success aside from that. So they were leading at halftime despite not playing their best game. And it seemed like if they were going to have any chance uh, to even stay competitive in this game, that they had to play a, a near perfect game. And, and it wasn't, they were winning. I did not think they were going to win that game even at halftime, just because we've seen through you know, the first eight quarters in the, you know, the first 17 games of the season, just how much better San Francisco is. Guys, we've talked all year. The defense started off the first four games terribly, and then they came alive for about four games there in the middle. But we've talked all year. They just have to improve. They've got to get better on defense. Joe, 
Purdy had a very easy day. 332 yards. He was hardly touched. They also had 33 carries, 181 yards on the ground. In the second half, they go touchdown, 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 field goal, end of game. I think they score on eight out of their nine possessions on the day. The Seahawks defense is just not good. And it hasn't been for most of the year. So I I think that's part of the reason why Brady and I each said at halftime, even with a lead, it felt like a house of cards. And it is just an incredible arsenal of weapons. Kyle Shanahan has at his disposal with Debo Samuel back healthy, Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle, Brandon Ayuk, and yeah, Kyle Shanahan is is incredible, but you got to give some credit to Brock Purdy because at no point does the moment look too big for him. And there were some moments of him evading pressure. He had one of the most Im- impressive incompletions I've I've seen all season, where yeah, yeah, he yeah, avoids, he rolls to his right. It's right. Santonio Holmes esque. Yeah, I think he was tremendous, and it's easy to take all the credit away and say, well, it's just Kyle Shanahan, and it's just so silly that. The moving of the goalposts that Seahawks fans have done to like make themselves feel better about it. It was like, well, he's going to have a terrible game because he's Mr. Irrelevant. And and now the Seahawks have a game of film on him and he's going to look bad and he doesn't really look bad. And it's well, it's just because it's Kyle Shanahan and it's like, all right, well, I've seen CJ Beathard. I've seen Nick Mullins. I've seen other quarterbacks in that offense that are okay, but not setting playoff records and the big story here Brady is what the big story was about Russell Wilson when he first came out of college which is he was great right away they had their quarterback for the next handful of years at an incredibly low price it looks like the 49ers are now embarking upon a similar plan they're going to have Purdy and Fold playing great football for dirt cheap it looks like that right now. I mean, you know, fortunes can change quickly in the NFL and the 49ers know that better than uh, any team in the league. Fortunately for them, they've saw Trey Lance get hurt in week two. Then they saw Jimmy Garoppolo go down. So Purdy's got to stay healthy. He's also got to, you know, maintain this level of play. And, you know, what's to say that the clunker isn't coming for them. And maybe it happens when, you know, he faces a much better defense in Philadelphia in front of that hostile crowd in the NFC championship game, assuming both teams make it. And I would, I would put my money on both teams making it at this point. He's got to, he's got to continue this level of play, but if he does, then as crazy as it would have sounded two months ago, sort of like what we've been saying about Geno Smith. And I mean, if he takes him to a Super Bowl, how is he not their starting quarterback? He's their starting quarterback. Now he doesn't have to take him to any Super Bowl. How is he not their starting quarterback right now? Of next year, he's played. He's been the best quarterback in the NFL since he has started statistically by just about every metric. And now he's won a big playoff game, even if he goes out and he craps the bed next week. Uh, how is he not the starting quarterback in San Francisco next year? Yeah. And I mean, I, I would I would probably bet that, too. But okay. organizations do funny things when they sink a lot of resources into a player like they did with Trey Lance. And okay. so maybe it, it might be hard for them to to totally give that up. But at any rate, it's a very good situation for Joe, them having a, a very good quarterback on a nothing contract. Joe, was it my imagination or in the first game since being snubbed by all the all pro teams? Did Tariq Woolen struggle? He did not look oh, like yeah. the same 27 that we've seen for the last about 13 or 14 weeks. He wasn't good. Ryan Neal had some bad moments. Um, I mean, again, the defense as a whole was really bad. I don't think you can look at anyone and say Bruce Irvin had the feel good Zach early. B 
beyond that, they only hit Brock Purdy three times. That is the difference of what we've seen all year long is right. the trenches is a huge weakness for the Seahawks against any team that's, that's competent in that regard. And it was on display again on Saturday. So yeah, it all comes back to credit to them for battling and leading at halftime, but I'd be hard pressed to talk to any Seahawks fan that, that really believed truly that, I mean, did you answer your own question? I guess, I, I guess you, we, we, we told you, I'm curious what you thought at halftime when they were up, did you think, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this could happen. I thought they lose by three touchdowns going into the game. And I thought at halftime they'd lose by two touchdowns. Yeah. See, we're all on the same page there. Brady. We have talked about how much work the front seven needs and how just deficient they are there talent wise. And that's very much true. I think they're the primary issue with their defense stem stems from the front seven, but tackling has been bad all season long at all three levels. And it was again in this game and, you know, Woolen, he's been great this season. He's going to want that play Debo Samuel touchdown catch back where he gets blocked downfield by Brandon. Ayuk. He's going to want that playback in addition to a few others, you know, Ryan Neal, you give the guy a ton of credit because he's playing at what I imagine to be a whole lot less than hundred percent coming off the knee injury that uh, kept him out for the past three games. And it sounds like almost landed him on IR, Mm -hmm. but he, you know, had some rough moments in this game tackling wise. And so they've got to just be better. They've got to be better tackling team. And that's not just a front seven thing. And Jamal Adams, having him back or having him there certainly would have made a difference there. He is, I know people like to poke holes in his game and and the coverage is not, it's not great, but he is a very good uh, pass rusher as well as a very good tackler that would have made a difference. Assuming he can stay healthy next year. Maybe that makes a difference, but that's just got to improve if they want to be at anywhere near San Francisco's level defensively. I might come back to Ryan Neal at the end here. Seahawks, no table, Joe fan in Vegas, Brady Henderson. And where are you? Santa Clara, San Francisco. Where the hell are you? Are you somewhere close? Menlo park, Menlo Menlo park, park. Um, Facebook. I do believe y'all went North for the hotel from the stadium. I like it. All right. Um, This is our final edition of the Seahawks note table, but there's some other topics that I'd like to get to first. We got to have the Geno conversation, guys. You know, I had somebody say to me a couple of days ago, what good is it that the Seahawks make the the playoffs? They're just going to get run in the first round, and now we have less a pick, and what really do they accomplish? Well, one thing I think they accomplished, does John Schneider and Pete Carroll see if you guys agree with me? They got to see Geno in a huge game. Now, they got 17 games of him. He had a really good season. A lot of people have been kind of getting on him for the last half of the year. But in total, he had a really good year. But had they lost last week or they hadn't made the playoffs, John and Pete would have gone to the offseason still not knowing what happens when Geno is in a huge playoff game, maybe even on the road against a good defense. I don't know how you guys thought he played. He obviously made the two mistakes. He fumbled the ball and he threw the ball to the other team. But I thought in total, considering who he's playing against and where, the ball was on the money. He did not look like he was affected by the moment. He made some really good deep throws. I thought the throw to DK Metcalf when Metcalf tripped and then it went off of his hands. I thought that throw was a great throw. If DK Metcalf doesn't lose his feet, he probably catches that ball for a touchdown. Where are you on, first of all, how he played on Saturday? Start with you, Brady. 
and then kind of go from there in what's to come in the Geno Smith Seattle Seahawks story. This game was a microcosm of his season and uh, apologies because that's what sports writers do. We look for microcosms. This was it. He was great in the first half, nine of 10 for, uh, I can't remember the yardage total, but he was really efficient, really clean, had the beautiful touchdown pass to DK where DK gets a one-on-one and they both take advantage of it. And that was the first half of his season where he was great. And he made the Pro Bowl off the strength of the first half of his season. And then the second half, the costly turnover, the strip sack where they're getting into range for what should have at least been a field goal. I know it was third and 14, so you don't expect them to score a touchdown there, but you know, that was sort of the second half of his season, uh, seven interceptions over the final seven games, five over the final five games, uh, in addition to, you know, some other turnovers there. So I think Gino is a really good quarterback. Their, their defense is the bigger problem. I think you can win with Gino, but I do think that he's probably a guy where you, you have to have a really good team around him. Cause I don't know if he is, and this is not meant to be a slight on Gino because there's probably only a couple quarterbacks, three, four in the NFL, who you could really say it about like your team doesn't have to be great around them because they can carry you. I think they've really got to build up the team around them, but they can win with Gino. Joe, Gino on Saturday. And what's next, do you think, for the Seahawks and the quarterback? Yeah, I don't I don't want to repeat everything Brady said. I think I'm in agreement with pretty much all of it. And I'd Really just come back to if if you're someone who is spending a lot of time harping on whatever Gino did on Saturday or even at any point this season. I mean, he's, he's nowhere near the top of the list of this team's problems and issues. And so but um, that's not an argument to bring him back at twenty five or thirty million dollars a year. Him not being one of the problems. I think we all any level headed Seahawk fan would agree exactly with what you just said but now graduate to, is he enough of a strength? Okay, he's not a problem. Is he enough of a strength to invest some serious money on him and forego those rookie quarterbacks at the top of the draft? Well, I don't think he's good enough to forego a rookie if you fall in love with one, but I do think he's good enough to to play a year on the franchise tag. Um, And you have to get creative with the cap space because that would consume essentially everything that's available to them at this point. The cap is the figure of our imagination it's just it can be moved and adjusted and you can create space seemingly however you want to how whenever you need to kicking the can down the road so um that part i i wouldn't spend a ton of time stressing over yeah you need a you need a quarterback for next year so unless you are gonna sign what Derek carr or you're gonna bring back drew lock Go with the guy you know, and I think he's worthy of, okay, maybe not the big multi-year investment, but certainly one year on the franchise tag. You could do so much worse in terms of that value. All right, we're going to uh, come back to what more they need to do because this is going to be the the last time the three of us get together for a while on Mitch Unfiltered. So I do want to touch a little bit. I know it's really soon, but I want to touch on their free agent list, Brady, here in a second. But before we get too far away from what happened on Saturday, I think we owe Taco time, uh, who was doing some work. There's a a couple of obvious choices. I think if you want to go the Seahawks direction in a loss, there's a lot of guys on the Niners and we can go outside this game. I'll go last because I'm going to go outside this game. Joe fan, you get the pick of the litter. Who was doing some work like Taco Time's been doing for 60 years? I think I say this every time these teams play and I'm going to go with Kyle Shanahan again. I mean, you just see what he does for Mr. Irrelevant, it doesn't take away from what Brock Purdy has done in his short time as a Niners starter, but 
what, like no Mr. Irrelevant had ever won a game and now he's won six in a row, including a playoff game. I mean, he's been incredible and Kyle Shanahan deserves so much credit. I mean, look at guys who are just open in space, the ability to use all of his chess pieces in an efficient manner where they're all getting touches. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's force fed. It's within the natural flow of the offense. We have this conversation with what does the Seahawks coaching staff give you that is anywhere in the ballpark of what that edge is. And it's kind of the same conversation with, you know, with Geno Smith is okay. Well, how many quarterbacks are truly carrying a team? Okay. How many coaches are truly giving their team that level of an edge? I mean, he is, if not one, yeah, which I think he is yeah. two or three in terms of offensive minds in football. So Kyle Shanahan has been and continues to do a whole lot of work. Brady. I'll take the obvious one for the Seahawks, and that was DK Metcalf. Best, ten catches, best for the last, right? Save the best for the last. Yeah, ten catches on thirteen targets, one hundred thirty-six yards, uh, two touchdowns, including that fifty-yarder in the first half. And according to ESPN stats and information, uh, he has tied Randy Moss. There you go. Thank you for the second most touchdowns of fifty-plus yards in postseason history, with three of them. And this is another huge postseason game for him, sort of reminiscent of the uh, the wild card game at Philadelphia during his rookie season, which was sort of his coming out party. And so he uh, had a tough two games, the final two games of the regular season against some very good cornerbacks. Uh, but he came, he, he really uh, gave them a chance, at least in the first half in this game. DK Metcalf was doing some work. I'll go off site and call on Trevor Lawrence. I understand he did something special in the second half, as bad as he was in the first oh half, and brought his team back after throwing four early interceptions as the Jaguars won a thrilling playoff game against the Chargers of Los Angeles. Trevor Lawrence, taco time, was doing some work. So, guys, we find ourselves having a very similar conversation this offseason that we did after the Mariners were eliminated by the Astros and that we're still having about the Mariners, which is what? How do the Mariners bridge the gap between them and that team in their division, the Houston Astros? Well, now the Seahawks have been eliminated by their rival in the division, and we find ourselves noticing a big difference between the two right now, and we want to know how do they bridge the gap? How do they catch up? to where the 49ers are talent-wise. They've got five, number five. They've got number 20. I think they've got number 37. I think they've got number 51. So I think they've got four of the top 51 players in the draft. So there's that. There's free agency. But let's talk before we go about the interesting but not seismic list, Brady, of free agents for the Seahawks. There's the obvious in Geno. And then there are some interesting names, but not seismic, as I say, names. Puna Ford, Austin Blythe, Rashad Penny, Cody Barton. I don't know. Phil Haynes, Marcus Goodwin. What do you guys think? Let's start with you, Joe. What do you think about that lot of free agents? And is there anybody that I mentioned that you're like, mm, they got to get him back somehow, some way? Yeah, beyond Gino, the other interesting name is Ryan Neal, who's a restricted free agent. And... You know, I, you look at pro football focus says he was an all pro. And I don't know if 
you know, maybe everyone else would say he's one of the best safeties in, in all of football, but but there's no denying he was an incredible value for the Seahawks. And the fact that they had him on the roster when Jamal Adams went down was insanely clutch, albeit on a defense that was largely terrible. <laughs> but I do think that's sort of a an unsung storyline of this offseason is, is what does happen there um, because he is warranted. We talk about Geno's payday. Ryan Neal is warranted a payday of some degree in terms of a, a nice big bonus and a raise. So how big is that bag that's coming his way? And is it the Seahawks that give it to him? So um, I would say he's really the second one. Puna Ford, you would have thought would have been a priority, but he was invisible all season, just absolutely not a fit in the transition um, to the new defensive scheme. I mean, I don't know if his name was called once all year. I mean, maybe yeah. a small handful of times. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's Gino, and then what has happened? What happens with Ryan Neal, and then beyond that, I don't know if there's anything that really you it keeps you up at night. Yeah, yeah. Two of the big spots in my mind are center and inside linebacker. And look, Austin Blythe, I think he held his own for parts of the season. He was good early on, but I think over the course of the year, you just saw him get overpowered. And he's he's not a big guy by center standards. And I think this team has to get rid of the whole idea of getting small athletic centers <laughs> and get a big hoss. No Joey Hunt. There, a guy who you're done on no Joey, Joey Hunt. Hunt. No Joey Hunt. Okay. No Austin Blythe. Okay. Just get a get a big stud in there. How about and, Austin uh, Powers? Um, no, no Austin Powers, no Dr. Evil, no, a lot of vagina, uh, okay. no, all okay. those people. You, oh, you, you can probably cut the, cut the part out. Um, oh, God. Thanks. And, uh, thanks. You not only make us wait two and a half hours for you, but then you throw, <laughs> you throw what name? I don't even know that. Na- I don't even want to know. Don't, don't, don't it was, it name. was the, okay. <laughs> is that getting cut out? Okay. No, we're not cutting it out. We're not cutting it out. This is the Seahawks no table. This is what happens this when we do the, this. At 12, this is Mitch unfiltered. Oh, for Emphasis God's on unfiltered. No, it's Brady week. unfiltered. That's an Brady. actual. It's not Mitch unfiltered, for God's sake. It was an actual character from okay. the. If you're going to leave that in, then leave and it what in. Was this, that what was this? What was the character's name again? I'm not going to repeat it. This is a family show. I work for a family company. But that was a character in Austin Powers. Right. Anyways. Uh, the other spot is is inside linebacker, and they suddenly have more work to do than you would have thought. I, I would have yeah. thought that that was a spot where they would have looked to upgrade over Cody Barton, but Barton kind of played well down the stretch, nah. and they lost. Well, I mean, in, in this game, He's maybe out. not, but he, he made some plays. Joe, but speak some sense it. into him. Cody Barton is not your starting linebacker. Okay, in, but in game but, one of the 23 season. Absolutely but, not. So you're going to replace by the both way, those guys. And while you're speaking about Cody Barton, would somebody please tell him that you're supposed to tackle the guy in red, not your own player who was about to make the tackle on third down before the guy. The, you're, you're not supposed to knock the other defenders down to allow Debo Samuel to go for a first down. Can you share that message with him, please? Yeah, no. I, I watched the game. I realized he didn't have a good game, but I think there's only so many guys you can replace in one offseason on defense, and He's they're going to have to replace them. a whole lot of other guys. He's one okay, of them. but Jordan Brooks is tore his ACL in December. He might not be ready until Thanksgiving, so you're not going to have him for the first two or three months of the season. All the more reason. There's only so dominate. many guys. Go get Bobby Wagner. Is he available this offseason? <laughs> yeah, he might. He might be. You never know. Uh, uh, and then you know, in terms of Ryan Neal, he's a restricted free agent, like uh, like you guys have said. He's you could bring him back on a second round tender worth around four. 
million dollars and change. I think that is an absolute no brainer okay. because you want to play with three safeties anyways. And at this point you can't count on Jamal Adams staying healthy for 17 games. So okay. Neil coming back as a restricted guy, that's a no brainer. The next time the three of us will be together, at least on a zoom, maybe we'll be on a golf course somewhere, but next time we'll be together on a zoom, Joe fan, it'll be in the days leading up to the draft. And the question I'm going to ask you right now is going to be the question that people are asking for the next four months. So why not just ask it right now? They have the fifth pick in the draft. They're probably outside of the Will Anderson, Jalen Carter sweepstakes now just by a pick or two. I looked at the Jimmy Johnson famous, you know, what do you call it? Draft point chart, something like that. The draft value chart. The, char yeah. the draft value chart that he made famous a million years ago. And I wondered aloud to myself, that wasn't allowed, how much <laughs> it would cost to go from five to three. And his chart says it's almost exactly the 37th pick in the draft. Not the 20th in the first round. Their 37th high second round draft choice that they got from the Denver Broncos. So my question to you is this. People will be wondering this because... He might trade down. He doesn't normally trade up. Would you trade, Joe, the 37th pick, which if he does his job, John Schneider, it's probably a starter, especially if he's on defense, for the opportunity to go up two spots and guarantee yourself essentially one of those two guys and maybe the pick of both of them. What would you do? I think if they do that, it'll be for a quarterback. I don't think they would trade up to go get Jalen Carter or Will Anderson. I think if they make that move to move up in the draft, it would be because John Schneider fell in love with the quarterback. And again, and he that's wants not to go my, get him. But that's not my question. I'm asking well, if you. I'm telling you they're not going to. No, okay, I wouldn't. No. I would you not. Wouldn't. You, you would not no. trade the 37th pick to go up two, two spots to get one of the great defenders. Nope. Brady? You would have to be really, really convicted on one of those guys. And Will Anderson has drawn some comparisons, I think, to Vaughn Miller. And if you think you're getting Vaughn Miller or anything close to Vaughn Miller, then, yeah, you give up a second round pick to move up. Now, Jalen Carter, and I'm just sort of you know going off of what some of the other draft analysts are saying, it sounds like there may be some sort of personality concerns there. So you've got oh. to be really okay. confident uh, with that. And that's, again, that's not my analysis of him. I don't know the guy from Adam, but uh, mm -hmm. that's what Todd McShay and other people have said. So you've got to be really certain in your evaluation of him and, and feel like he's going to be a, a fit in the locker room and he's going to have his head screwed on straight. You know, the last time they took a defensive tackle really early, it did not work out well for them. And I, these are two different guys. I'm not trying to like equate the situations, but I wonder if they may be kind of scarred there. Okay. Uh, that's a, di that's a different story, but um, I think it's just as I could just as easily see them trading back and trying to pick up, you know, trading back five or six spots and trying to pick up maybe an extra first rounder uh, just because again, that defensive front needs a lot of work. It needs a lot of work to do some work. To and that brings work. us to the end of the Seahawks no table, a season that we all thought might end, I don't know, 5 and 12, 6 and 11. Instead, it ends 9 and 8. And in the playoffs, although it was a thud in the second half of the first playoff game, Joe Fan, win bet in Las Vegas, Brady Henderson, ESPN.com. Should I mention to the audience and to you guys the outcome of another season of KPs, or do we just skip over that and just assume that everybody knows who's going to win that thing every year that we tee it up. It's the same thing all over again. 
See, so, I'm guessing by the smug ass take your victory that question <laughs> that, that you won it today and you won it during the season. Ring the bell. I didn't Ring win it today. Bell. I didn't win it today. I won it on Saturday when this game Saturday. was played. Yeah. But I am super appreciative of a, of a few things. I'm appreciative of Brady Henderson jumping on, especially on these Sundays where he's got games and he's trying to do his job. Although this was a Saturday. Saturday. ESPN.com. Joe Fan kind of sits around and waits for Brady to say, okay, I'm on now. And then Joe <laughs> Fan gets on. And Taco Time, all kidding aside, Taco Time Northwest makes all of this programming, this football content that I do on Unfiltered possible during the season. Again, I'll say thank you to you guys. I really appreciate both of you. Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, thank you. Well, thank you, Mitch. It's been a pleasure again. I really like doing this. Sorry for all the times I made you guys wait, including this last time. Thank Greg Bell for the use of his uh, hotel. And Joe Fan, win bet in Las Vegas with a handicap that just keeps getting lower and lower and lower. Fellas, I enjoy it. Cheers to another season. Look forward to more down the road. Appreciate you, Mitch. Hey, look who's back on Mitch Unfiltered. It's Katie Versio, the Director of Financial Planning at Evergreen Golf Call. Happy New Year, Katie. I know what 2022 was like for all of us investors out there. Not good. How about for you guys at Evergreen Golf Call? Yes. Well, thanks for having me, Mitch, back on the podcast. As we've talked about many times, 2022 is a very challenging year for the markets where for the last 10 years or so, we haven't had a lot of volatility. And at the end of the year, the market ended down about 18% and bonds ended down about 13%. Wow. So it's been a tough environment for investors. Basically, every asset class was down, but it was a really good year for Evergreen. I would say there was still a lot of volatility in our portfolios, but we find a lot of opportunity during these turbulent times. We manage our portfolios very actively, and this was a real shakeup of a year where we were able to find a lot of clients that may have been managing portfolios on their own, and now we're realizing, hey, this is more complicated than I thought, and I really want to make sure that I'm holding up well for, for my own goals here. For those listeners out there that don't have a plan and invest or a financial plan or haven't reviewed it in a long time or just have questions of if you're on track, now is a great time to learn more about our services. So what would be the best way to contact you for our listeners? Do it through the website? Yes. So if you go to our website, www.evergreengk.com, you can learn more about our services on the website. And there's also a client compatibility survey that you can take that will then have one of our advisors contact you. Very good to know. And for all of us who need help, and most of us do with our investment needs. Katie Versio and Evergreen Golf Call are there for you. Evergreengk.com, a terrific partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Unfiltered. So this is called the other stuff segment, just random things we're going to throw out there, talk about it a little bit, maybe laugh, maybe cry, and see where we go next. We talked about Rome Adunze in the uh, in the T segment. I talked to him about, or I talked to Neuheisel about him too. So now they're getting everybody back. They're getting some guys in the transfer portal. What do you think? Seven preseason? Six preseason? 10 preseason, what's going to happen? Top 10. They're going to be in the top 10, and that's all that matters. <laughs> I don't think there's a huge difference between seven and nine. 
if you're not in the top 10, it can become a problem of getting high enough. You can start to sweat it, especially because we don't know how their non-conference schedule is going to end up being evaluated. They have a road game at Michigan State, which when it was scheduled and certainly entering last season, you would say, hey, that's going to be a marquee game. Well, that victory over the Spartans didn't look all that good. They have a tougher schedule. They're at USC. But if you're in the top 10, if you start in the top 10, you can be reasonably certain that if you if you, if you get through with one loss, you're more than likely going to be in the conversation and position for, for the, the playoff. It doesn't cost you anything. Get those frequent flyer miles ready, Daniel, Timothy O'Neill. You're going to be at a lot of games next year. I am very much hoping so. We've already talked about it. Like I'm definitely going to East Lansing and, and, and LA. I want to, I want to go and bid USC adieu to our fine conference. And I hope we do it by putting a boot between their butt cheeks. (laughs) Would you consider flying to Seattle for the weekend of August 12th? When Felix Hernandez goes into the Mariners Hall of Fame, I ask you that and I ask you a second question, which is, I guess maybe I was asleep at the switch at some point. Every article that I read about the decision to put him in the Hall of Fame, the Mariners Hall of Fame on that August weekend next year, refers to some hard feelings and a rough, bumpy breakup. And I, maybe I was in a coma that week. But what am I what am I misremembering? I don't recall that there was a problem between him and the organization. I think the issue is between with Scott Service and and to a lesser extent Jerry as well. But yeah, Felix Felix didn't like when he was pulled out of the starting rotation. Like that was a huge issue. And I think that Felix felt that those guys didn't fully sort of appreciate or respect him. Mm-hmm. And what he'd done and meant for the franchise. And I, I say that not in an entitled sort of way, because I don't think Felix is someone is that, but Felix had been a really loyal player. And I think that he he felt he was treated more like a what have you actually done for me being the Depoto service regime. And I don't think he's wrong about how Depoto and service looked at him and I don't think DePoto and service are wrong for looking at him that way. It's kind of, I can understand, I can understand all sides on that one. And it didn't get ugly in large part because Felix never, I mean, he ultimately didn't pitch anywhere else, but not only that, like he didn't pitch well anywhere else. If, if he had gone somewhere else and pitched well or made a rotation, I think it would have been more clear how disappointed he was with how it ended. There's no such thing as benefit of the doubt in professional sports, at least for the most part. But if there was ever a guy, I think you and I probably somewhere along the line over the years, either on the air somewhere or off the air, probably have talked about this. If there was ever a guy that deserved every single benefit of the doubt, I still marvel when I think back at all the opportunities he had to just get the hell out of Dodge. He was sunk on a bad team. He was at the top of the game. The Yankees wanted him so bad. He could have made, I mean, back then, whatever it was, $30 million a year. He had chance to free. He never became a free agent. Always signed a contract, an extension before. Always got in front of a microphone and said, 
I want to be here. I want to turn this thing around. I don't want to go play for the Yankees. And and as a result, he spent his entire career excelling for just a really bad franchise. But he was so lo- almost loyal to a fault. Uh, it's just an incredible story. It's almost a made-for-TV movie that that guy at no point of his career actually decided, ah, eh, let's try somewhere else. The ending needed to be different for the made-for-TV movie. Right. The ending needs to be... He's the guy who doesn't have the fastball anymore, but he's hanging on there with veteran toughness and he learns a new way to pitch and he's not the phenom anymore, but he becomes the and he never had that sort of late career little renaissance that would have allowed for that storybook ending. I agree with you. Felix was the one thing that was worth watching on that franchise for a solid decade. We joked about Eric Bedard. I was at the opening day game that Eric Bedard started in place of Felix. Like I was there for that. And I know that pissed Felix off. I know that pissed him off. And he didn't, he was always good about those things. He really didn't ever show up the organization when he was clearly the best thing going and he would lose games one, nothing and two, one regularly. Like he never did that. And he, and he stuck around for it. And I remember what it was like to watch him pitch when he was in his prime and King's court, which I thought was one of the coolest things that happened. Like if people try to do it now and it's, it's, there's a corporate element to it that did not exist with the King's court, which was naturally this God awful team with this dominant pitcher. And there was a way with the big stupid Turkey leg to (laughs) properly celebrate like once out of every five games, you knew you were going to get to see something special with this god-awful team. And I think there is validity to the criticism or the question of whether Felix got everything out of his career that he could. Mm. I, I, think, I think he could have adjusted more and learned how to remain effective when he no longer had such dominant stuff that it, that it didn't matter. Like, I don't, I don't think he made a pivot in the back half of his career that would have allowed him to sustain. I think that once he didn't have an edge over guys, once his stuff wasn't that dominant, that it went away and and he became average and then, and then a below average starter. And that was tough to watch, but that doesn't mean that I don't have an incredible amount of respect for him and, and really gratitude over making (laughs) 10 years of Mariners baseball much more pleasant than it otherwise would have been. And I, would, I don't know how many dudes in pro baseball that are as good as Felix that would have signed up to be like the, the, the King stud Haas on a team that was clearly headed nowhere for a solid decade. And there was a decade there where there was pretty much no hope. Like it was brutal. And every, every three years or so, they would have a better than average season. They wouldn't quite make the playoffs. And we'd be like, oh, they're going to get it. And then they'd go and get somebody like Sean Figgins and just set a bunch of money on fire. And Felix stayed there for all of that. So, like I said, I can understand how DePoto and Service, when they got there, looked at it and said, we really needed this guy to adjust. And he didn't. And that was something that made it really hard for us to get back into the playoffs. But from my perspective, I have no complaints in the overall Felix Hernandez experience because it was spectacular. And so now the new Mariners or the newest version of the Mariners are going to be going to Arizona soon. Pitchers and catchers, before you know it, we'll be reporting. And like it or not, 
No big boppo free agent like we all thought might happen. They didn't. They decided they're not going to spend it. They spent it already on a left-handed former Cy Young Award winner and an extension for their young superstar and the pitcher they got from Cincinnati who's going to be fantastic over the course of the last week. A.J. Pollock, I don't know if that does anything for you, 35 years old. I think that's a good signing. It's a good signing in that it, it improves the team and it provides a little bit. You go into the season with, I'm assuming that it's he and or Kellenic. There's kind of the, he gives yeah. you a little bit of a veteran cushion there. Right. Like, I think that's a good pickup. It doesn't mean I wish they hadn't done something that was better than that. But for the cost benefit and not, like, I think that's a, I think that's a good pickup. I think it's a good pickup. Are you starting your, your clock, your watch list on Felnin Celestan? I hope I've pronounced it right. The 17 year old shortstop who you said doesn't shave yet from the Dominican Republic Republic. He's the number two prospect from this international class. He's a six foot one switch hitting five tool player with a dynamic skill set, says the Mariners and a high ceiling. How long is it going to, will I be a grandfather first or will he be on the Mariners first? What's going to happen next? I believe you'll be a grandfather first. Mitch, I, I, I refuse. I refuse to get excited by international signings. You can sit there and tell me how important they are and you're right. And you can sit there and say like, oh, this guy's special and that's why they paid all this money. And, and you're right. I think international baseball signings, I think it's a gross economy. Like I think the actual way that it works is exploitative and disgusting. I don't have a better alternative. Like, I I don't have a better alternative. It is weird, though, that you can sign a 16-year-old in the Dominican Republic and you can't sign a 16-year-old in the United States. Like, that is a fundamentally weird reality of that labor market. Um, So I refuse to get excited. In fact, I came across the news today. I'm still trying to piece together the entire reference, but uh, somebody tweeted out today and it was retweeted. His name is Productive Outs. And he's a fairly, he's a decently sized Twitter account. There's like 12,000 people. It says, source, the Seattle Mariners have signed 17-year-old first base DH, Marlboro Jesus, one of the top players from Puerto Carbonzo. (laughs) And now I, I think... I think it's this guy's gag of any time a prominent international signing happens that he just posts something like that with just nonsense, like Madden name generator type labels. And from not to kind of poke fun at the insanity of the process, I might not be correct with the joke, but I immediately decided that I'm going to henceforth refers to uh, this player. Like in my head, he's going to be Marlboro Jesus. Danny O'Neill, I've buried the lead. Who responsible for the following quote? Are you ready? Yes. I'll give you the quote. You tell me who said it. In and out is the best. I order two double doubles animal style fries and a Coke. And that's just for me. Meg gets the cheeseburger and fries and a side of jalapenos. I just stick with ketchup and that special sauce of theirs. So very good. Whose quote is that? Meg? Is that what Sue Bird calls Megan Rapino? Prince Harry calls Meghan Markle. Prince Harry is an in and out enthusiast? Not just an enthusiast. Apparently, when they drive from wherever they are in California to Los Angeles, the two of them, there is an in and out burger at the exact halfway mark that they go through every time, the drive through. 
and the drive-thru people see Harry and Megan coming. They get all excited. They know the order. They all say hello. It's like a great, big, fun, warm, cozy reunion at In-N-Out Burger. And I saw this and I thought of you because you and I have discussed this on the the peace show when you were in the corner. I told you, and I'll still, I'll still say it, I don't dislike In-N-Out Burger. I've been to it probably three times, three different versions. L.A., I was at one in uh, Northern California. Good, but I don't get it. I- I'm missing something. What am I missing on the, the fascination of In-N-Out Burger? I have In-N-Out pretty much anytime I'm in California. And I'll say Arizona has an in Like, I'm very familiar with the geographic distribution of In-N-Out. <laughs> I love In-N-Out Burger. And I'm not sure if it's the way the burger tastes in that the patties are just laid on and there's nothing that like the the bur- the bun is still sort of soft and spongy as opposed to and I don't want this to come off as criticism of Dicks because I like Dicks but it's a different burger like where the Dicks burger is a little is a little smashed like there's a little bit of a compression that has occurred none of that happens with the In and Out I love the In and Out fries a controversial take because a lot of people think they they taste more styrofoamy I point to the fact actual potatoes yeah double double. Regular flies, fries, chocolate shake. Every time that I go to In-N-Out, I love In-N-Out. And to hear that that Prince Harry, that <laughs> English royalty, is he still royalty or is he abdicated? Like, is he, is he what's he considered? I don't know. That, that Prince Henry did it. Um, I will share a little bit. I made a snide reference to, I don't enjoy the English monarchy. Like, I don't, I don't follow it. I, I generally loathe it. Um, I don't understand Americans who are obsessed with it, but I also am obsessed with things that other people are confused about. Like, why was I obsessive about Gary Carter? Who knows? If it brings them happiness, go for it. But uh, I made a comment when Harry married Meghan Markle that I thought it was a fitting reflection of the current global power structure that their (laughs) beloved prince was marrying an actress from an off-brand USA Today characters welcome show called Suits, which not a bad show. I've watched a few of it. And on Twitter, my lovely cousin, one of my 37 first cousins on my dad's side of the family, Sarah Cornwell chimes in and says, be careful. A lot of your cousins went to school with Meghan Markle. Oh. In fact, your Aunt Candy taught Meghan Markle. Oh. And it's true. Immaculate Heart, which I believe, I know it's a high school and a junior high. I'm not sure if it's a grade school as well. There in Southern California, Meghan Markle did in fact attend. And my lovely aunt Candy Wrecker reported she was a delight in the classroom. Exceptionally nice. Really, really happy for her. And I've always felt a little bit guilty for my snide jokes about Meghan Markle. And I found myself. I now hate Piers Morgan because of Meghan Markle. In fact, if I see Piers Morgan, if I see Piers Morgan, I'm definitely going to spill a drink on him and might kick him as hard as I can in his shin because I think he's an ass because of how he talks about Meghan Markle. Do you feel guilty for your snide remarks and not so snide remarks over the years about Starbucks interim CEO Howard Schultz, who says, I'm annoyed that workers aren't coming into the office Starbucks is now asking workers near its corporate headquarters in Seattle 
to go to the office at least three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and a third day to be decided by individual teams. Howard Schultz is pissed off. He's felt he's feeling let down by his employees. Why are you laughing? Because anything that bothers Howard, I assume is on the side of angels. (laughs) Anything that bothers Howard is fantastic. And the fact that he isn't this the is this the second or the third time he's come back from retirement to take over his company again, right? Like he is the worst kind of boss. He's the kind of boss that never stops being the boss. Like he's always, and he just doesn't want to deal with it from day to day, but then he gets fed up and it's like, I have to come back and it's my brand and it's my passion. And the fact that he's come back, like every time a Starbucks unionizes, every time a Starbucks unionizes, an angel gets its wings. Like every time it happens. And I think that should be true even for the anti-labor union folks that exist in Seattle. And for the record, I am very pro-labor. In fact, I'm in large part, my marriage is due to a strike that I went on in 2000 and 2001. But, but I'm saying like even separate and aside from that, that man takes it so personally that his ingrate employees won't just do what he tells them. And it makes me so happy. I think every one of them should act exactly like Gary Payton. I think every one of them should channel their inner Gary Payton and give Howard as hard a time as possible. I don't know how I segue to the story about Bernie Kosar. Have you heard that heard that story? Former Browns quarterback. Bernie Kosar has been eliminated from the team's pre-halftime and post-game shows. Yep. Because the on the first day of gambling, that gambling was allowed in the state of Ohio. He commemorated it by placing the first ever bet, sports bet in Ohio, I think just after midnight on January 1st. It was a $19,000 bet because of his number. He wore 19. He agreed that this is just a bet for charity. If I win, the money goes to charity. But it was kind of like the ball dropping on wagering in the state of Ohio. The NFL, which, by the way, is now essentially partnering with wagering, says, no, that's against NFL policies. He's no longer valid. He's no longer able to be on a an official team's radio broadcasts. I don't gamble, like just as a general rule, like even when I go to Vegas, I like being around gambling. And when I'm there in a sports book, I'll place bets on games, but it's usually very minimal. But I'm not I'm not a prude about it. I just don't like it. I don't I don't handle the uncertainty. Well, I don't enjoy it. What I do enjoy is watching the NFL and by extension, other sporting entities trying to reverse course on years of puritanical obsession with opposing gambling because they now see they can profit from it. And all of the things that are getting caught up in the wayside. Did you see the Drew Brees story? It's similar. Drew Brees was like an honorary coach for Purdue in their bowl game. He did that commercial for like, what was it? Points bet or something where he got struck by lightning on, on Twitter. And it was, it was a fairly tasteless marketing because it was made to look like, Oh my God, Drew Brees might've just died on my television set, my computer screen because he got struck by lightning and no, it was advertising lightning bets. In New Jersey, they declared that the game was off the boards. Like anybody who bet on it in New Jersey, they had to get their money back because there are all these complications and different 
conflicting allegiances. Like you can't be in charge of a team and be betting on games. That's illegal. There are serious impropriety. You don't want people who are involved in these games betting on them because then that's going to lead to inferences that, oh, it's it's being fixed or there's insider information. So I love watching all of these things, the collateral damage or the indirect consequences of the NFL specifically, but all sports in general, now looking to make a buck off of something that they opposed for so long. Like I, I hope they continue to look like absolute asses. Every one of them, the people that are endorsing it, the people that are the, the teams that are allowing it now, like all of that. I want chaos. Mm. Well, we're at the end of episode two twenty three. How did it go for you? Out of the corner, it went very well. I feel like I got, like I was fit for company. Um, there was one thing I wanted to see. Um, yes. if you might be willing to let me share, sure. Since we've since you reached the end, or is it? Well, I I normally end with the RIPs. I was going to ask you who Jeff Beck is. Charles Jeff White, Beck's a guitarist. Yeah, seventy eight oh, years guitar. old. Charles White, sixty four, the great USC running back who uh, won the Heisman Trophy. I think nineteen seventy nine, if I'm not mistaken. He was sixty four years old. Former Mariners outfielder Lee Tinsley passed away. At, uh, at oh. age 53, I don't know if you'd seen that. That's normally, and then we let Hotshot do his, uh, his funny jokes at the end, and then we ring the bell. So instead of the funny jokes, what do you have to bring to the table? I'm, I'm curious about this. Well, last week, I reached out to you. Uh, we are in the process of buying, it's not a condo in New York City, my lovely wife and I, Sharon Chan, buying a co-op, which is, it's not unique to New York, but it's it's a fairly unusual when you buy an apartment here, you buy into the building and then the building leases you your apartment like you join a corporation, essentially. And the process for applying to buy a co-op is unlike anything that I've ever experienced. We had to have a number of personal recommendation letters, financial recommend like they were four personal recommendations copies of every account that we've had with any assets in it, tax forms, like it is exhaustive. In fact, I would go so far as to label it. It is a financial colonoscopy that you that you go through in this. And as part of it, because I'm now self-employed, yeah. they asked for a couple of like letters from people saying that like, I'm aware of who Danny O'Neill is. I work with him, like those sort of things. So I reached out to Mitch thinking, Mitch and I have known each other for a number of years and that this would be really good. And I didn't want it to be too much of a, a, a hassle. So I sent Mitch kind of a template from it <laughs> and it starts out, dear members of the board, Danny O'Neill is someone whom I've known for a number of years. First, when he was a newspaper reporter and later when he became a talk radio host. Now as a freelancer, he has a regular weekly segment that is part of my podcast, Mitch Unfiltered. And then I included an additional paragraph. And my general thought was I would include something um, kind of uh, irreverent, comical, and that I didn't want to tell Mitch to say nice things about me because that would be an arrogant ass thing to do. Uh, like really, really try to, to build me up. So I wrote, uh, I first became acquainted with Danny when he was just a somewhat net nettlesome little irritant who covered sports for one of the local newspapers. While he was covering the Seattle Seahawks, I invited him on my daily radio program to talk about the Seattle Seahawks. He repaid this exposure when, in September 2012, he accepted a part-time role at our rival station and left me high and dry. I then watched in slack-jawed amazement as he continued to fall upward in the broadcasting industry despite no discernible talent. 
when he became a freelancer in 2021, I was worried that his fragile self-confidence would fracture entirely. So I offered him a chance to talk for a few minutes each week on my podcast. And while I've had to keep these conversations behind a paywall to minimize the amount of irritation he causes, I can truthfully tell you that he is a contributing member to my podcast, Mitch Unfiltered. <laughs> I assumed... I assumed that Mitch was going to read that and say, ha, ha, ha. Very funny. And rewrite. No. And Mitch sent, sent it back. <laughs> These people. <laughs> for, for contrast, just for simple contrast, I would like to read an excerpt from another letter of recommendation that we got. Like, this is actually serious, and it's from someone who writes for the New York Times. This is how it starts. Dear members of the board, I am writing with great enthusiasm in support of Sharon Chan and Daniel O'Neill's application to join your cooperative as shareholders and residents of Unit 10F. I've worked with Sharon since she joined the New York Times in August 2019 as our vice president of philanthropy. This goes on and on. Dan, <laughs> I also got the chance to know Danny as well. He is funny, smart, and lovely. A famous sports journalist in Seattle <laughs> who is now working on a book. <laughs> I am going to frame the letter you signed, Mitch. It's become one of my favorite things in the world. I, I didn't know whether you really wanted me to sign that or rewrite it, and I was... It was home one night. You seemed to be in a hurry. And I thought, ah, if he's okay with it, I'm okay with it. I... <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, where's my bell? Uh, oh, here it is. It's right in front of me. Danny, you're a good man. Uh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you can catch Danny and I together each and every week on Mitch Unfiltered for patrons. All you got to do is go to MitchUnfiltered.com, become a patron at $5 a month. You get that show plus all the other weekly uh, bonus shows that I do during the course of the year. Danny has been very kind to me uh, in New York to be with us on a weekly basis for the patrons. Also, the dang apostrophe. What's the best way, would you say, for people to sign up to read? He, he writes. It's beautiful. It comes right to your email. He also does some some podcasts and some different video fun that goes along with the dang apostrophe. What's the best process, would you say? Google Danny O'Neill Substack or the dang apostrophe Substack. Or just Google the dang apostrophe Danny O'Neill and it will pop right up. Thank you for coming out of the bullpen in episode 223. I hope I provided quality long relief. I ate some innings. <laughs> I'm your innings eater, Mitch. Episode 223 is in the books.